there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. So now it's time for today's guest, and we're so excited to welcome Carly Fortune. Carly Fortune is the New York Times bestselling author of Every Summer After. She's also an award-winning Canadian journalist who has worked as an editor for Refinery29, The Globe and Mail, Chatelaine, and Toronto Life. She lives in Toronto with her husband and two sons. Please join me in welcoming Carly Fortune. Yay, Carly, you're here. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, we're so excited. So many of our listeners are big, big fans. Um, and we really want to ask you about your latest book, Meet Me at the Lake. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to share the premise of the novel with us. Yeah, absolutely. It is a love story about Fern and Will who meet in their early 20s just as they're graduating from university. And they have this chance encounter in the city that leads to them spending 24 hours together in Toronto. And they have this great connection. They tell each other their secrets. They talk about their hopes and dreams for the future. And they make a pact to meet a year later at the resort where Fern grew up. And Fern shows up the day they agree to meet and Will does not. And then cut forward 10 years in the in the future, Fern is back home at that resort. She is running the place following the death of her mother. It is the absolute last thing she wanted to do with her life. And it's becoming clear that the business is struggling. Her ex-boyfriend is the manager. And then in walks Will with a very surprising offer to help. And he is 
very changed from the young man that she knew in her 20s. And so the book goes back and forth in time between that day they spent together in Toronto and the current summer at the resort. And I think it's a really tender-hearted romance. It absolutely is. And it's also very juicy and very curiosity-inducing because of the way you, and I imagine this is intentional, but the way you chose to tell the story, the way the story unfolds. So the very first chapter, we have a character who's grieving. And one of the things they always say on the podcast is grief is not an active emotion. No one is ever curious when someone is experiencing grief. You're, you empathize with them, but you're not curious. And you just showed me how to break the rule. So thank you so much for that. You just showed all of us because Fern is grieving. And yet I am so, so curious. And Obviously, I'm curious because there's so many juicy things in the setup. One, she doesn't want to be there. So there's the forced element. She's there, obviously, because of, I guess, duty to her mom. Two, there's the backstory with Jamie, because that's just interesting. If you put an ex in a scene, like an ex-boyfriend, an ex-whatever, that's already interesting, right? Like, because people are like, wait, what's the history there? What happened? Why did they they break up? Are they getting back together? We don't know. And then, of course, the most juicy part, Will showing up. And she doesn't recognize Will at first. So I have a question. Did you get any notes on people being like, wait, she would recognize him instantly? Or because to me, it felt so believable because he just looks so different, like you said. Yeah, there was a bit of like fine tuning with, you know, does she recognize him right away? Does it take a beat? And thinking about, okay, they spent 24 hours together. So and and then he shows up very, very different. So how long, you know, it takes her maybe a few seconds. It's not immediate, but it takes her, her a little while. Yeah, no, that was something the whole kind of first, I would say, you know, seven chapters, especially in the present, where they are kind of dancing around each other, figuring out exactly how they would feel and how they would, you know, respond to each other, how they would speak to each other, but then what Fern's internal dialogue would be. That took a lot of, that is almost what I worked on the most throughout all the drafts of the book, because it's a very, um, it was a very hard kind of like emotional landscape to figure out. She's grieving. You know, I wouldn't say she was in love with Will in the past, but he was special to her and he ghosted her. So what is like, what does that feel like? And then how do you respond <laughs> to somebody who has show, shown up? That was, that was tricky. So yeah, I spent a lot of time on that. I love that you mentioned her inner life, right? Her inner dialogue, because that's that's a huge part of what makes this work. We're inside her head. So even though she's she tries to act, tries, <laughs> it being the operative word, she tries to act super professional isn't really the word, but like it's just, just like normal with Will. And in her head, there's sirens blaring. She's experiencing chemistry. We have all these different emotions and different thoughts. And one of the thoughts she had, which I thought to me really elevated the whole experience I don't have the line in front of me, but it's, but she thought something like, I never knew whether the time I spent with Will is something that I should remember, or if it was ridiculous that I remembered it as well as I do, right? Like, she doesn't use the word ridiculous, but the point is, and to me, thinking about how, what you're thinking, thinking about whether what you think or not is normal, this is a, a mark of being human, because we all do it. And, and so the way you place that really, really works, which of course, you know, because you, you you did it. And do you have a tendency to overshare and then you come back in drafts or do you not reveal it all and then you plant curiosity seeds? What's your process? I think it was, you know, I try to start with the curiosity seeds. I try to have them there from, from the beginning, but it definitely, 
required fine tuning and especially you know what do we want to reveal when and like what is too soon what it like just like where do these beats come in in the book and trying to really that balance of not revealing too much so that it, the it's still you still want to turn pages there's still this tension you're still not sure what has happened between them while not frustrating the reader for the reader not to feel like you're purposefully withholding something to be nasty <laughs> that that does take time that take that takes drafts but it is something I try, I try to be, begin with. Like I'm, I'm thinking about from the beginning, what is it? Why are we turning pages? What is it that we want to find out? What are the right spots to find out the information? And, and then of course, it's adjusting that as we go along. And you mentioned a lot of time. How long did it take for you to write this? From first draft, from idea to final draft. So it took the first draft. I think I was working on it for maybe eight months and and not full-time at the beginning because I was writing I began writing a few like six weeks after my second child was born and then the second draft I we decided to throw out half of the book so the entire past timeline we pressed delete on we made the characters older it was all set at the lake we made half of it set in Toronto so I rewrote half of the book and then of course the rest of the book changed based on that and so I did that in two months and then the subsequent drafts were a few months on top of that so it took me over a year to write which compared to my first book every summer after I work I did in four months you know, like as in the early mornings and edits took two weeks so it was a very very different writing experience were you expecting it to be such a different experience or did you think it was going to be the four-week situation with the two-week editing period because that sounds so efficient <laughs> yeah no I I wanted it to feel like the first book did which really did feel like magic in a way and that like Elizabeth Gilbert big magic things are just kind of flowing through you onto the page I felt like I was doing exactly what I was meant to be doing but I just with the second book the felt the first writing the first kind of felt like a fluke and I wasn't sure if I could do it again and I had sold the first book and I had a two book deal so I now had an editor, an agent, a publishing team every summer after hadn't come out yet, but I still felt that pressure, even though nobody was pressuring me. And I had a lot of self-doubt. And that was really the main struggle for me writing Meet Me at the Lake is every, every single day I sat down at the computer to write, I would battle the negative talk in my head for an hour at least. And that I just kind of had to push through that every day with the first draft. And it was tough. I'm so glad you did that. Thank you. Any tips for, I guess, shutting up that, <laughs> that silly voice in our head that goes, yeah. you have imposter syndrome. Yeah, it's, it's hard. And I, I, you know, I, it, it did get quieter the further I got into the book. And now I'm working on my third book and it's, it is still 100% there, but just not as loud. I mean, I have a therapist. I think, I think if you, any way you can protect your mental health as any person in the world, but especially for writers, I think is really important. So I have a therapist. I need to exercise to help with anxiety and that's tough postpartum. Like, and then there was the winter that was, that was hard, a challenge when I was writing, meet me at the lake. And then the other thing is that I think just leaving 
allowing for some room for it to be hard. And, you know, maybe there is some, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes there's struggle. We all experience it. <laughs> so we're in it together. And I, I think when you're, I was really trying to fight against it, like fight against that anxiety and fight against the negative self-talk. And I, I think once I just started to kind of embrace, you know what, I'm just going to feel like this sometimes. And that's okay. That's okay that's okay. I won't always feel like this. It, it helped. That helped. I love what you said about allowing for it to be hard. I don't know why, but there's, there's so much about writing and publishing that people assume they know. And when they do it, they are surprised by certain things, which is normal, I think, because that's just how everything goes. I personally feel that one of the misconceptions is that it's going to be this delicious thing all the time. Like it's going to be so amazing all the time. And I think it's because Typically, writers are voracious readers. And yeah, reading novels is usually amazing all the time, right? Like, we love it. Like, I got to read Meet Me at the Lake so I could interview you. That was the best. I was taking notes. And sure, technically, it's work, but it's the best work ever. Um, however, when you're writing, it's, yeah, there are days where you're like, no, this is really hard. And it's it's a little bit like torture. And it's a job. So you have to push through. And that that work ethic is, I think, what, what, what allows our favorite authors to keep putting out books. So, so I definitely thank you for that. Thank you thank so much. You. I wanted to chat about the character of Fern because she's such an interesting character in, in many ways, she's a girl next door and really easy to love. Very likable, like very, very likable. She's, and yet she's feeling all these so-called unsavory emotions. A really great example is right in the first chapter where she mentions, so her mom just died, right? This is not a spoiler. It's a premise of the novel and she mentions how she's angry at her mom irrationally angry is how she calls it but she's angry because her mom got into a car accident because of her work ethic right and so fern is feeling all these complicated emotions we also know that she spent 24 hours with with will when she had a boyfriend and of course there's there's more to it to the story but she's not a perfect character is what i'm getting at and she's incredibly likable how did you develop her character how did she come to you how much of fern is how much of you is in Fern? How much of your friends are in Fern? Like, how, how does that process happen? Well, I'm so glad that you found her likable. It's not my aim to make my characters likable, but it is so wonderful when people do like them. Fern is a little bit like me, but but not so much and definitely not based on any of my friends. I saw her when I, so the first thing I developed with this, <laughs> I say developed, <laughs> that's a generous word for what happened. I was lying awake in the middle of the night with insomnia after my son was born. And I was trying to come up with ideas for the second book. And I thought, okay, what, like, like, let's start from scratch. Where do I want to be? What's the setting? Cause that's like so important to me. And I saw the resort right away. And then Fern came to me kind of immediately after as this woman who had grown up at this resort kind of in the middle of the bush and had like wanted to get out of there and had now had to return reluctantly and I knew that she was a little bit prickly that she had a big heart but that she really protected it and I I knew that she would have struggled with her mom growing up and that, that I wanted to tell a mother-daughter story and the part that is personal to me is that I grew up with parents who, who were in the tourism and hospitality business. My parents had a restaurant and an inn, and it is an all-consuming kind of job. And, you know, we were, we worked at the restaurant, we worked at the inn, my, my brother and I, 
and that our whole lives were kind of structured around the business. And so that Fern's kind of, I kind of amped up Fern's resentment and drama, (laughs) but that was like very, very personal to me. And I wanted somebody who I was trying to think of a character who was a little bit different from the character I had written in Every Summer After, Persephone, who is kind of full of regret and very, very anxious. And while Fern is struggling, she's grieving, she is a person who really, I think, knows herself and knows what she wants. And when we meet her, we've, we're just seeing her at these two points in her life in her early twenties and her early thirties, where she's at a crossroads and she's questioning all of, all of these things, this, these, the paths that she's on. And she is the strong person who is feeling very vulnerable. And I had a lot of fun with her. Strong person who is feeling vulnerable is the perfect way to describe her, actually. That's what it is. Yes. It's interesting that it wasn't your aim to make her likable because I I think I picked up on that by the fact that she didn't feel ostensibly likable. Like, I don't think that she wasn't virtue signaling. She wasn't doing any of the things that like it's I don't even necessarily know that she likes herself, though. I don't think she dislikes herself. I don't think she spends too much time thinking about that. She spends a lot of time thinking about the people in her life, about the relationships in her life. And that's a really great way to make someone likable, right? To give them people they love and that they struggle with because that's just the nature of relationships. So I guess I want to talk to you about the relationships so, because we have so many. We have obviously the one with Will and Jamie and her mom. Like her mom isn't isn't there for the present day timeline, but she's there because Fern thinks about her all the time. She's very much a present absent character. Even Whitney or Camden or Philippe, like we have so many people in her life and everyone is playing a different role. So how do you map that out? Like, do you have like a post-it situation? Do you have a war room? Like, how do you do that? (laughs) I wrote this on my bed. So there was no, there were no, it was a very low key war room. I, I use Scrivener. And I always start out a project thinking I'm going to be very, very organized. And I don't, I'm not a plotter and I don't map out who my characters are too much at the beginning. Like there are some things that I I note about them and then I keep documents for each character and fill it out as I go, go along. So I know can remember, you know, whether they, their will scar is on the right side or left side of his chin, things like that. And, and, but then I always abandon those notes. I always forget to use them. So it really, what I do when I am in the stage of my drafts, I, you know, I've worked on it through Scrivener when I'm feeling pretty happy about it, I'll print it, print it out and put it in a binder. And then I use tabs, color-coded tabs to kind of track each character and their arcs. So I can go back to the tab, let's say there's, you know, Will's story and his kind of character development is blue. I can look through the blues and see if that's working. And so that's one way I kind of map it out for myself. But yeah, it's not, I I don't think I've nailed it yet. Like I still, I, I'm a bit fly by the seat of my pants. And then like somewhere in the, in the game, I'm like, oh, I have to get organized. But one thing I do track, which I find very helpful for romance in particular, because relationships are so the relation, the central romantic relationship is important, but I also like to write romances that have other love stories in them, whether that's a friendship love story or a mother daughter love story. I see Fern and Jane's story as a, as a love story too, but it's a, it's a breakup story. 
I keep little notes about what is special to each kind of couple for sometimes they are romantic couples and sometimes not, you know, whether they have things that they say, like references that is personal, that are personal to them, or there is a big moment that is particular to them and try to really keep track of the relationships as much as the characters. That's really cool. I mean, I get, get what you're saying by a low key war room, but it still sounds like, like a great process, right? Like, first of all, you had me at color taps because that just sounds amazing. I love color taps. So what about chemistry? Because that's to me, oh gosh, like the chemistry between Fern and Will, right from the beginning too, right? Like, and they, they meet at a coffee shop. Like he's, he's painting a mural. She's there working. And technically, like if I had to describe this to someone, they'd be like, I don't get it probably, right? They'd be like, okay, so yeah, she meets a guy. So what? But the chemistry just flies off the page. How do you write chemistry? Give us tips on how to write chemistry. Thank you so much. I wish I could give myself tips on how to write chemistry. You don't need them. You already do it. (laughs) Um, Well, with Fern and Will, she is obviously physically attracted to him right away, but quite annoyed by that fact she's annoyed in general that she has to spend time with him and he just continues to be so delightful despite her crotchetiness which was really fun and I think it's those I find it's those moments where you realize that 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 another person is seeing you and they are reflecting you back to yourself which like, I think that's kind of what you're, what I'm trying to show these these moments where you're as the reader can see why these two people are drawn together because they really see the other person. They are delighted by what they see and are, and then are slowly letting themselves be seen, if that makes sense. And there's this moment in, there's a lot of moments in the beginning when Will and Fern meet where you can see that he is noticing her like he's he she's hungry he offers muffin or he asks he's asking these questions or picking up on the music that she likes and at the end of one of the scenes she makes him a coffee and he asks for three three packets of sugar for his coffee and she puts down a fourth packet of sugar because she could kind of tell he wanted more sugar from the way he said it and he they don't say anything about it but he puts all four packs in his coffee and those little details where you're you can just like see this like relationship spark to life i think are as specific as they can be at, and then is like really important and then can you, can I pick up on this later? You know, like Will and Sugar and Fern and give making Will's coffee becomes a thing in the present tense as well. I love that. It's the playfulness, right? It's the playfulness and the layers. What I'm, what I'm taking away is that, of course, detail matters, but I think it's also about making detail matter beyond the one scene. So for example, with the, with the Sugar, in the present timeline, she thinks about that right? Like, cause she brings him coffee, bad coffee from the resort before, this is before she gets her French press and she adds sugar to it. And she thinks to herself, like if, you know, if back then he, he'd like four packs of sugar, people do change, but how much can someone change? And I have a very big sweet tooth. So I can attest to the fact that yes, um, I do not put sugar in my coffee, but I will never not like chocolate. <laughs> That's never going to be a thing, which actually brings me to my next question. Present timeline, past timeline. How did you keep track of them? I know you mentioned that you deleted and you changed. So do you write the now and then you write the then? Or do you do you alternate in the process? Tell us about that. 
So I started out with this book, writing the chapters back and forth. So writing them alternating. And then I quickly, which is how I wrote every summer after the entire book, I wrote that way, but I quickly dropped that because I want it because the past story takes place over 24 hours to take, pull myself out of that 24 hours as the writer was very difficult. Whereas with every summer after the past chapters are basically a year apart. So it's a, it's, you know, we, I'd come back to it. It's like, oh, we have a new summer. How old are they now? How old are these characters now? And it's kind of like, was like starting from scratch every time, but with a 24 hour story arc, I felt like I needed to write it from beginning to end in order to keep myself in that story. And so that's what I did initially for the first draft and then went back and started writing the present day. And then it was the same with the second draft where it was easier to do the second draft because I already really knew the characters. I knew them as teenagers and what they what they had gone through as teenagers. I knew them as adults. So picturing them as 20-somethings was really enjoyable. And I knew... I had the structure of the book. So I knew where the chapters would fall, the past timeline chapters. And I spent a weekend just kind of quickly sketching out in point form what that past timeline would look like and where they would go in Toronto. And then I was, that became very easy to then write that, not very easy, but much easier to write that past timeline. And then I went back and changed the present tense based on all the changes that I made in in the past. And honestly, that kind of broke my brain sometimes. <laughs> it, it is, a, it's a, it's a lot to keep track of. And, you know, the just book math, I call it book math. So how old were the characters when, how old are they now? What, how many, like all the book math became very difficult changing things up, but I've just read over and over and over again. <laughs> I love that book math. Oh, it's a thing. The only kind of math I like. <laughs> Secrets. That's what I wanted to ask you about. There's something that happens to to Fern when she's in high school, her senior year, and there's a lot of references to it. They're curiosity seeds, and we keep reading in part to find out what it is. And we also know that her mom kept a diary and that at some point Fern read that. One of the things I think a lot of writers do, especially when they're starting out, is if there's an epistolary component to their novel, they start with that. Like they start with the diary, they start with the letters, they start with the text, they start, and it's really hard to get invested. It's an exchange, not so much, but if it's one person, right, like one diary entry, one letter, it's really hard to get invested because as a reader, we don't know the characters yet, and we don't know how much they are revealing versus how much they are withholding, which is something we can only know if we're inside someone's head and we have interiority versus the dialogue versus, you know, the actions, etc. Was this secret? And also to all the secrets in this novel, like, was this always a part of the story? Is that something that you layered in after? Did you ever consider starting, which I absolutely do not think you should have, but did you ever consider starting with that? Like, how did you always know what was in in her diary? How, how, how do you figure out secrets is my question. I did know the secrets from the beginning. One, because the, the diary element is one of the things I thought of first and I wanted it to, so it's written the summer of 1990 and I wanted it to appear to tell Fern's mom's summer love story, but actually what it would tell is a mother's love for her daughter. So I knew that from the beginning. And I also knew what had happened in Fern's past. It got, it 
it changed a little bit, but but not too much. But also because I had initially written the book when Fern was a teenager, so after this incident had had just happened, so it it was it was always there from the beginning, and with the diary, I I didn't consider starting with that. I did end up write. I ended up writing the entire summer. So Maggie's summer of 1990, I wrote diary entries for the entire summer. That oh, wow. Did you really? I did because I didn't know. I knew I wanted to have them in there. I didn't know how to get them in there. And I didn't know where they should, like figuring out how they worked with the architecture of the book and flow through the story properly was something my editors really helped with and something that we were kind of like, you know, I think into this second, third draft where I was getting there, but I wrote, I don't know, maybe 12,000 words or so of diary entries. And now they're, they're quite short snippets. And I think are a very effective the way that they are in the book. And in that way, you don't want too much of it. Like you don't want to be pulled out of Fern's story too much. But I thought I felt it was really important to understand what had happened the summer of 1990 in order to understand Fern's mom and therefore Fern's relationship with her mom. So, so yeah, those things were were pretty much there from the beginning. And there's a secret with Will too, which took me a long time to land on. I, I had finished my first draft. I hadn't submitted it. And it was, you know, the figuring out Will's secret was figuring out what Will's issues were. And it took a lot of self-reflection and conversation, a very emotional conversation with my friend to kind of like get there with Will. He was, he was a difficult character to, to write. Did you ever consider writing from his point of view? Yes. In fact, I have a bonus chapter coming out later this summer that is told from his point of view. Do you really? I didn't even know about this and I asked. I'm so happy now. I haven't told anyone yet. So yay! breaking news at the shit no one tells you about. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's so exciting. Oh my gosh. I really want to read that now. He's such an interesting character. He felt very real to me. Like uh, they all did, but Will, like obviously Fern, obviously, but like, I don't know. It's almost like Will was also a protagonist. I think that's, that's the beauty of writing romance, right? Because the, the protagonist is is fixating on this person, then you are fixating on this on this person too. And so that's where the chemistry lies. Okay, so we are close to our 30 minute mark. And I really want to ask you, what's next for you? Tell us about your next project. You mentioned, oh, I felt a lot of pressure, even though people weren't putting pressure. Cece is now putting pressure on you because Cece needs another book. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take this pressure, Cece. I'm delighted that you're reading my books. I am working on my third book. It is another romance. It is very summery and I'm so excited about the setting. I can't say too too much yet. Hopefully, I think later this summer we'll be able to announce more information about it, but it has been, I'm about to start my third draft, which is, I've got a, a so many scribbles of notes. We're like breaking apart the structure of the book right now, but I am so excited about this one. Just like, I'm so excited about it. Okay. Now I'm excited too, even though you gave us nothing, Carly. (laughs) It's a third book and it's romance and I'm really excited. So now good job. Curiosity seeds. Good job. (laughs) Okay. My final question. Could you please recommend us a book? It can be a book that you are super excited to read, but haven't read yet. It could be a book that you read and you loved. We really want to know what you're reading. 
I am very excited about this because the book I want to recommend is Sunshine Nails by Mai Nguyen, which I first heard about, learned about on this podcast when it, when I think it was the query letter and first pages that were critiqued on the show. And now Carly is Mai's agent. And I got an early copy of this book and I remembered listening, <laughs> listening to the episode uh, about it and thinking, oh, that book sounds really interesting. I loved this book. I cannot stop talking about this book. It is, so for anyone who missed that episode, doesn't know what I'm talking about, it is the story of a mom and pop nail salon that is struggling. It is owned by two parents, immigrant parents from Vietnam with their young or their millennial adult children are kind of teaming up together to turn this nail salon around and across the street comes the Starbucks of nails. And it's about the family's questionable, unethical ways of keeping the business going. It, it has um, five points of view. Each is like written so wonderfully, beautifully drawn. It is fun. It is fast paced. It is smart. It has so much to say about gentrification and betrayal and marriage and racism and struggling to find your place as a, as a young adult. And I just loved it so much. I am not an annotator. But on the third page of the book, I got out a pen and started underlining the writing because it is so wonderful. So that is Sunshine Nails. Like everyone has to read it. And it's set in Toronto in the junction. Yes. Yay. I love that you plugged in Sunshine Nails. We did not ask her to do this. No. <laughs> Go read Sunshine Nails, the book that made Carly an annotator. And... Go read Meet Me at the Lake if you love stories that are relationship-driven, if you love romance, if you love chemistry, if you love feeling that tingly feeling in your belly where you're like really excited for the protagonist and really wanting to, really rooting for them, but at the same time kind of wanting to shake them just a little, just a little, you will really, really love this book. So thank you so much, Carly, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Are you ready to finish the exact book you've always wanted to write? on exactly your own terms. The Mindset to Finish Your Book is a nine-month personalized one-on-one -on -one coaching series where you'll learn to trust your writer brain, claim your creative vision, and become a leader in your own life. You'll learn the most transformative tools of life coaching and how to apply them to your life as a writer. Because you and your book are not a closed system. You, your book, your partner, your children, your day job, your agent, your editor, and your health are an ecosystem, and we need to nurture all of these relationships for you to thrive. Learn more and download your free workbook at mindsettofinishyourbook.org. Through this guide, you will learn how to fall back in love with your creative vision the very next time you sit down to write. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, everybody. It's Carly Waters here. I am going to be doing the author interview today. And we have something so exciting, so incredible. I teased it a little bit on my Instagram, but we have Emily Henry here today. Emily Henry is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Book Lovers, People We Meet on Vacation, and Beach Read, as well as the novel Happy Place that just came out. She lives and writes in Cincinnati and the part of Kentucky just beneath it. You can find her on Instagram at Emily Henry Writes. Hello. Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I see you have your copy over your shoulder and I have my copy here too, so... Oh, amazing. Yes. Um, your blazer is like, I feel like a perfect compliment to the cover. I'm like jealous. Yes. It's so bright. 
Yes, I'm, I'm contrasting hopefully all the good ways. Well, thank yeah. you so much for, for being on the podcast. We are yeah. huge, huge fans. So on our podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, I always tell people that you are the best in the business at dialogue, truly. Like no matter what any genre anybody's writing, I'm like, you have to go read Emily Henry. You have to go read her dialogue. You do you. such an incredible job contrasting with interiority and like what the character's thinking and like when they're saying something different. And I just love, I just love that balance. And so right away when I started your novel, I was like, got my pen out and I was ready to like highlight all, all the dialogue. And right away on page 19, you have Harriet saying, I'm good, my mouth says. And you are very bad, actually, my brain argues, right? Is this little like contrast between her <laughs> yeah. interiority and what she's saying. And so I'm so curious, like, does this come really naturally to you, the dialogue? Do you work at it? And how do you know, like, you've got your dialogue right? Oh, my gosh. It does come pretty naturally to me. But I think, I don't know if every writer does this or not. But if if anyone listening doesn't, you should absolutely say your dialogue aloud. And I'm sure that you've, like, said that before on this podcast, had, had other guests say it. But I really think that that is part of why <laughs> my dialogue works is because I am, like, constantly just kind of mumbling it under my breath. And I'll like say it aloud, repeat it a few times, if, especially if it's a joke. It's like, I need to know if this lands. I need to know if the sentence feels unnaturally long or if it feels long in a funny way or whatever. Like I need to imagine how an actor would say it. And I don't know. It's so interesting because I, I have become much more of like a movie and TV viewer since I entered adulthood. But as a kid, I was such a reader and that was kind of the only thing I was interested in. But I do think that for whatever reason, TV dialogue made more of an impression on me than book dialogue did. Like everything else I think I was absorbing from books, but dialogue I think I was absorbing from TV. I don't know. It's like when you're when you're watching something for a dialogue, you become really aware of like the easy kind of cheats that people rely on, like the kind of the first joke that pops into into everyone's mind in a certain scenario. There's like a bit about that in the opening to Book Lovers where Nora is talking about like you get really used to what comes next in a story like somebody shares a really complex scientific fact and then somebody else goes um English please or something like that and so you kind of get used to like kind of the ticks of what like the natural beats but then also the ways that we fall back and kind of like cheat and that kind of jolt you out of something and remind you that you're watching something and so unfortunately I think my advice is to watch more tv <laughs> That's a great advice. I feel like through the pandemic, we've all probably watched a bit more TV and, and movies than we yeah. thought we might. <laughs> yeah. And we also, so hopefully now we also have all learned to stop doing the dialogue as overt exposition where you're like, hello, brother. <laughs> like, hello, brother. Are you, did you just finish your shift at the hospital as a nurse? <laughs> like, like, I, I feel like you notice that so much more when you're watching something and when you're reading that it, you might not notice, oh, this is like super unnatural and just kind of an info dump that, and nobody would ever say this, but when you're watching a scene play out, it's so much more obvious when you're like, oh, they didn't trust us to pick up on anything going on here. Totally, totally. And it almost has something to do with atmosphere, right? Because as the, like, if you've already created the atmosphere, you don't need the dialogue to do the work of explaining everything else that's right. going on. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. All right. And so I, well, first of all, I mean, the book just, as we're recording, the book just came out and just launched number one on the New York Times bestseller list. So congratulations to you. Thank um, you. I, I'm so curious about success, you know, and your idea <laughs> of it and what that all means to you, because obviously, as I said, New York Times bestseller is great. 
And I was checking out your website because I always hate asking questions that people have already asked you or things you've already said. And on your website, you said success in publishing is entirely separate from success in writing itself. And so there's like Mm -hmm. the financial block of success. There is the power play optics piece of it. And then there's Mm -hmm. just like putting your head down and just like writing and doing the job. And so now that you're so many books into your career, have you started to think about it a different way or is it still still the same for you? I think that the way that I think about it now is there's just this abject terror that when this part of my career ends, I won't be able to, (laughs) like, I feel like I'm spending so much time bracing myself and being like, it's okay that this is, this can't last forever and that's fine. And that's not why you do this. But I also am just like, know myself well enough to be like, oh no, it's going to be a rocky like descent when it's time. But the thing, so the thing that kind of shaped probably me, including that on my website in my Q&A was the experience that I had with my last YA novel, which was When the Sky Fell on Splendor. And that kind of came out in the way that most novels do, where it's just like a little puff and like four people know about it and none of them liked it. Like, that's just kind of like what's more normal. And that was a book that I fought for at every single level of the process. And um really, really, really believed in and still do believe in. And it was the last thing that I did before selling Beach Read. And so things with Beach Read were sort of amping up and I was like watching it all happen and thinking, okay, this is interesting. This is shaping up in the way that you kind of like hope and maybe even expect when you're new to publishing. You're like, oh yeah, everybody's excited. There's like buzz, whatever, like the sweet summer children expect. And I'm really grateful that it was happening at that point after I just have this book that I love and believe in that was basically an utter flop, except for like for the five people who love it. And that was really like, it was really significant to me to be coming to terms with what had happened with this one book that I really, really, really loved and believed in. While another book that I loved, but was so easy to write and just kind of flowed out of me and felt like, yeah, I'll do this. Watching that kind of shape up to, to land in a bigger way. And at the same time, this, this is such a weird t- tangent, but I feel like this is the podcast for it. So go with me here. At the same time, that Netflix show, The OA, got canceled. And for anyone who hasn't watched it, you should watch it. It is so incredibly weird and brave, I think. Like, it's so sentimental. It's so emotional. It's so tender and also strange. And it doesn't feel like it's modeling itself after kind of what we have codified as good art it really feels like it was made by someone who was like just protected in a little bubble away from all of that and so they could just make something incredibly pure and so even though I didn't love every decision made in that I was just like blown away by the decisions that were made in general because it was like wow like they're not tr- they're not afraid of being seen as too sentimental they're not afraid of being too melodramatic they're not afraid of being twee there's like a whole element of it that's basically modern dance. And like, there's almost nothing more uncomfortable than watching modern dance, like in a setting that you're not expecting to see modern dance. And I say that as a former modern dancer and like sitting next to someone watching it and being like, are they going to be making fun of this? Are they going to think this is too weird? And it's just this incredibly vulnerable thing. And that show got canceled and there was this huge swell of support for people trying to get it brought back. And it was like this really beautiful, beautiful thing. And that, so that was happening at the same time that I had this book that I really believed in just like flop, plummet to the ground. And then watching this other book that I also believed in, but was very different, shaping up to maybe like land and make an impact. And I had this revelation thinking about this show, The OA, that 
they could have never made that. They could have been like, this is too weird. This is too strange. Nobody's going to want this. Or they could have, if they looked into the future, they could have known, oh, it's going to get canceled and thought that it wasn't worth making. And it was so shocking to me to realize this beautiful thing that to me felt bolder and rarer than almost any other story I'd seen in so long could have just not existed because it, it didn't have the capacity to make money. Like it didn't have the capacity to make enough money for Netflix to think it was worth it. And so it was like, oh yeah, <laughs> like art is art and business is business. And this thing deserved to exist. And when you're doing an equation to decide if it deserves to continue to exist, you might decide, no, it's not worth it. Like we're not making enough money. It's gone, whatever, but it deserved to exist. And whether anybody validated it or not. And that was so like healing to me because I would think about my last book, Splendor, and and it felt like this permission for it to go on existing, where it was like, I believe in this and I don't understand why it needed to exist or who it needed to exist for, but I'm choosing to believe that the work of making it itself was significant, that it was like basically like alchemy where you're like, I'm making gold, but the real goal is like, we're going to be immortal. That's how writing feels to me. It's like you're doing this 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 small, like almost menial little task and you're believing that somehow it is like cosmically shifting something, whether you ever see it or not, whether it goes out into the world and five people read it and every, whatever. It's like you're saying, I believe this this thing like deserves to exist. So I come back to that all the time because now I am writing books that have a much wider appeal. I have an incredible readership who has followed me from book to book. And there is that fear, like what happens if and when this all kind of goes away? And I have to come back to believing that success in making art is making the thing that you wanted to make. And that's the only part you really have control over, unfortunately. You can't, I mean, you see people work so hard to to kind of sell themselves and market themselves. And while I have an incredible team who really supports my books, there is an element of just like bottled lightning where you're like, I, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't plan this. We didn't know book, book talk was going to exist and readers were going to like grab a hold of this and do their thing. And yeah, I think, I think spending too much time thinking about the business of making art is like a surefire way to slowly lose your mind. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. There's, there's nothing that we can control except like making the art, right. And it is art, right. It's your vision coming to yeah. life. So no, I love that. So the next topic I wanted to tackle with you was masculinity. So you are somebody who's kind of told to write the modern romance novel, right. And so I think what, what your writing has a lot to do with is creating these characters and these male leads. Number one, the female characters have a lot of agency, which is great. And then you, again, craft these male leads where I think they are incredibly modern, right? You have your male characters going on mental health journeys and things like that. So I'm so curious about when you're crafting your men, do you think about like what female readers will find particularly sexy? Or do you think just like how they're going to pair up as like as a duo? I don't know. I'm so curious about like how you imagine like the modern man and then how yeah. that relates to your readers. I think so much of it is exactly what you said. It's how the duo will, will pair up. It's sort of like you're falling in love with the whole couple. Like it's not Alex from people we meet on vacation with a different character might not be so charming, but seeing Alex and Poppy together is like, I think what really makes Alex sing and Poppy sing. So a lot of it is just shaping the right fit for two for for the lead character. But also sometimes it's like, okay, that's a dynamic I see in my life. And so I'd like to try and write it. So like 
opposites attract. Everybody knows a lot of couples where they're polar opposites. And I thought that would be fun to, to try and write that or like a peas in the pod romance couples who are like the same person. That's something that I see around me too. And so that's like kind of fun to write. I think that Wynne and Harriet specifically were a little bit more slippery from the beginning. It was really kind of hard to find them because they don't fit quite so neatly into more of like a stock character as like a starting point. But I do think what makes like so many male characters sexy really is the things about them that are like, that make them human, which is so, so interesting. I don't know if you saw that meme going around that was like a, somebody's tweet. I don't know who's. And they were saying like somebody being like, okay, who's your weirdest? Just go with me here. And then it was like, men, the hideous Natasha Leone, like, like, you know, men being like, even though she's kind of kooky, I would still, I would still hit that. And then it was like women, the centipede from James and, and the giant peach. And it feels so real. Cause I think like, I don't know if it's probably conditioning, but I think the things that so many women who date men or are attracted to men are drawn to in men is sort of like the weird little things. It's like, you kind of want to get in there and find the like weird little things about them that no one else knows. And it makes them feel so human. And then you're like this, this little kernel of you, it feels so special to hold this and to have this. And like in Book Lovers, that was Charlie Lastra turning out to have a, a race car bed in his childhood bedroom. It's like, it doesn't really fit with this image that you are getting first. And then once you get deeper and you find out those little details, it's like just a little delightful surprise every time. Yes. And I mean, what might be sexy to one person is only sexy because that's how their partner views them. Right. Exactly. And then we're like on that journey. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I think trying too hard to make a character who's universally sexy is probably another way to like slowly lose your mind because obviously everybody has different taste and even like just go on book talk for five minutes and you'll see like the sex scenes that some people love are the scenes that other people are think are like unbearably cringy. So you really have to just be true to the characters, I think, and, and, and hope that that's enough, that it's like you're ma making a character who's very sexy to another character instead of worrying too much about if the readers will think that they're sexy. I love that. So in this novel, Happy Place, one of the themes I really enjoyed was this idea of like knowing how to fight healthy, like whether it's your families or your friends, your relationships, you know, conflict is obviously something we need in all novels and it's inherent to life, but like is so cringy for so many people. And I just love that you really wanted to tackle conflict. And I was so, you know, in fighting and healthy fighting. And I'm just curious about how this theme came up for you. Yeah. Well, I, I knew that I wanted to write about a people pleaser because that's something I've been really trying to work on in myself to varying degrees of success. And so from the very beginning, a lot of Harriet's character was being built on this kind of scaffolding of her being a people pleaser. And so then going back into her history, I had to figure out what made her a people pleaser. And obviously that also required me to look at my history and then to make sure that the history I gave Harriet was not my history because I don't want to do that. And so all of that did lead me to the idea of conflict being when you're a people pleaser, ultimately that's what you're afraid of. And I think most of us are people pleasers to some degree, but maybe there really are some people out there who don't like get it, how like the feeling when there's something kind of unsaid and you're anxious about it, you're like, do you think they're mad at me? And and someone's like, well, just go ask them. And you're like, I can't explain it to you, but I would rather die. Like, <laughs> I can't explain it to you, but that is the most terrifying option. And I'm entering fight or flight, even thinking about it. So 
I think that's a familiar feeling, but it's a really hard dynamic to write because obviously readers like to think that, like we all like to think that we would make better, <laughs> different decisions. And so it's really easy to be like, why would you not just say something? And also because we're outside of the story, we're like, obviously he loves you, say something to him, like come clean about your feelings. But in real life, so often we are doing everything we can to avoid saying how we feel about something. And, and I think that can be the thing that destroys relationships. Like I, I feel like I had like a several big reckonings with within my my friendships over the course of the pandemic because like so much was going unsaid about like everybody's different boundaries and it's like nobody wants to put anyone else out and it's like you think that you're preserving your relationship by keeping tension and conflict out of it but actually everybody here is making huge assumptions and it's so much worse than if you just were open and honest about what you were thinking or feeling or whatever so I knew that because Harriet was a people pleaser, that would be something that would have played a huge part in her relationship imploding. And I also knew that she would be like bad at fighting. And it's really interesting because I am such a people pleaser and I do not want to fight with anyone in my entire life other than I'm good at fighting with, <laughs> with my husband. I was lucky enough to grow up with parents who really modeled healthy fighting, where it was like, I was never afraid when they were fighting I was never it wasn't like the whole house felt tense and like there was something that was about to really bad was about to happen it was just like you guys are so annoying stop stop arguing and then there would always be apologies and there would never be name calling there would never be like cruelty or I don't know like manipulation and and so I feel really lucky to have grown up seeing that modeled in a romantic relationship and being like yeah disagreeing about things is normal and talking about it is normal and you just aren't, you just don't attack each other and it's fine. And you just always care how the other person feels and it's fine. So that was like fun to get to, to write that and to hopefully help spread that modeling a little bit. I love that. Yeah. I it was something that I was picking up on. I was like, I see this thread coming. And then at the end, obviously there's yeah. the, the friendship conflict. So anyway, I loved it. That was um, a theme I really enjoyed. Um, Thank you. Okay, so my next question was kind of around like genre and packaging and snobbery and kind of all of that. So in the London Magazine a couple of years ago, you kind of tackled this and you said there are genres that are dominated by women. Women are in the editorial process, the writing process, and the reading process. And I think that has something to do with the way they are treated. People look at them and think of them as sillier, lighter, uh, less important, very commercial, and not necessarily art. Yes, there's commercial work in all these genres, but there's literary work too. The line between those two can be so flimsy there's not even a great way of explaining what makes something literary and so I I know that you have grappled with this internally obviously like through your work and obviously which brings me to our beautiful pink cover and so it is so pink <laughs> yes. and I love it it is Barbie pink like you've had yellow blue and orange covers yeah and I I don't particularly believe that you know colors have to be right. codified in terms of gender but like was it a conscious choice to go like very pink for this yes absolutely it was and and there was a part of me that was like I hope I don't live to regret it because this was also the first hardcover. And so I, I felt like, okay, I'm asking my readers to follow me into this new territory and that's daunting. And I hope they're on board and all of that. But then we had already decided too, that like, I like, we're like, let's do pink. Let's do like an intense, intense pink. And also I think because we knew that it would be the larger cast on the cover, it felt like this is the perfect moment to do it because it is this color that is viewed as like very traditionally feminine but it's like we're seeing this larger friend group but it's also very clearly a romance there was just a lot at play and um yeah I don't know I think it, I think there is a part of me that when 
uh, this is like a thing I've noticed about myself since I was like a teenager. If somebody is condescending to me or like thinks that the things that I like are stupid and does very little to hide it, I, instead of arguing with them or trying to get them to change their mind, I catch myself leaning into it so much. Like if I'm talking to someone who's just kind of shouting down everything that I love, then I'll be like, what about the bachelor? Do you love, do you like the bachelor? And just be like, oh, I love this about this thing about the bachelor. And like, I love this thing about Taylor Swift. And it's just like, you think I'm stupid. And I, it's not my job to convince you that I'm not stupid. And I'm going to chase you away by talking about all of the things that I like that I know that you like have never given any consideration to whatsoever. So I think partly the, the hot pink was like a little bit that impulse too of just being like, let anyone who is uncomfortable picking up a hot pink book see themselves out. But of course, not, that wasn't any of my readers. They were like, hell yeah, a hot pink book. Yeah, I pre-ordered it. I didn't even know what color it was. I was like, I'm pre-ordering that before I even have to, <laughs> Thank you. you know, make any decisions. But yeah, no, I think it suits it. I think it's fun. It's so super vibrant and it'll just pop off the shelves, which is obviously every every cover's goal. So um, my next question was around any any news in terms of your film options for your books. I know your fans are probably bugging you nonstop, but I'm curious also, are you going to be potentially involved in the scripts at all or producing? Have you packed your bags for LA or is it very much like you're oh letting gosh. the people and the pros do the job? I actually am like, like very much wanting to be involved for the time being like that might change because schedules get really hectic, but I am really curious to get to like look over at least one, one director's shoulder. I kind of want to see like how the meat gets made. So I am lucky to be involved. I'm an executive producer on all three adaptations. I am not writing them, but I have read the script of the one that's the furthest along, which is People We Meet on Vacation, and it's incredible. And Yulin Kuang, who wrote that, is also writing and directing Beach Read. So I am like very at peace with that, very excited. And then Sarah Hayward, who worked on Modern Love and Girls, is writing Book Lovers, and she's also incredible. Have not read the script yet, but I've heard really good things. So yeah, I mean, it, it seems like like Yulene and I have become friends, and then Brett, our director for People, and I are friends. We talk very regularly, so I think I will. They will probably <laughs> both let me come like creep around on set and watch everything happen, or at least I'll at least get a set visit. But yeah, it's. A lot of times there's the secret stuff that you can't share. And like for a very long time, I had been waiting to even announce these adaptations. But right now there isn't like anything new to share. It's just sort of like things have made incredible progress as far as scripts go. And now, of course, we have the writer's strike happening. So we will not be moving forward until we can kind of get that worked out because it's a, a bad idea to try to make a movie without <laughs> without writers being able to do their jobs. So we're waiting for studios to come through and, and agree to pay their writers. But after that, things will be moving and happy place. Like we were about to like go out with it and see who was interested, but then the strike happened and we mm -hmm. decided let's, we don't want to, we don't want to do that. We want to wait. And so that's just one more reason that the studios need to kind of like get it together so we can see what happens with happy place. Absolutely. Well, everybody, yeah. we all agree. Studios need to come to the table. Yes. Yeah, writers. Nothing happens without writers. We are very pro-union and pro-writers on this podcast. Yes. Well, that's so great. I'm so excited things are moving along. I know all your fans will be very eager to see the stories come to life in, in a new way. I know anybody that loves your work will just be so excited to follow you wherever you go. So congratulations on the success so far, obviously, and happy place. I know great things are, are still coming your way. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Carly. This was so great. 
Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Right, so this is our May Q&A for Carly and Cece. It's the last one we're going to be doing until August. Remember, this is our last Q&A and comps segment until August. We'll open up those lines again so that you can send in your questions and your comp requests from the 1st of August. As per usual, we're going to dive right in. Carly, here's the first question. An indie publisher just signed a book deal for someone who wrote with ChatGPT. Are other publishers doing this? Is there no point in writing anymore? Just wanted to know. Oh my goodness. What a heavy question to start with. Man, we are we are off with a bang here. So here we go, right? Like the printing press was the death of writing. Then ebooks were the death of writing. And then audiobooks were the death of... Like there's always going to be a technology that comes along and there's some doom and gloom, right? But I think we really need to reframe our thinking around this. And instead of doom and gloom, just say like, okay, yes, this technology exists. If I am going to use it, what are some ways I want to use it? For example, you could use chat GPT for things like comp research or just like research for your book in general. So we don't have to say like all technology is bad, but there's absolutely no way that an app can replace an entire industry or an entire creative way of thinking. Like it's just impossible, right? There is no software that can write your story. There just isn't. So take a deep breath. Everybody let it all out and we can just, we will live with chat GPT and we will live and we will be okay. Thank you, Carly. Absolutely. You as the author are your greatest asset. You are the only person who can tell your particular story. Don't ever lose sight of that. Right. Question two for Cece. Hi, I was wondering if authors use an email blitz service in order to get an agent. I need to send letters out to about 150 agents in the hopes of getting one of them. And it seems like a daunting task. Thank you for any and all help. Stephanie Stolinski. Stephanie, hi. Thank you for that question. I don't know if authors use this, to be honest. It had never occurred to me because it's very like me to not think about this. And I don't know how the service works, but I will say that if it's going to make your life easier, then go for it. The only thing to take into consideration is make sure it doesn't look like an email blast. Like the author-agent relationship is a partnership and this isn't a volume-based business. Um, it's more like a matchmaking business. So, you know, make sure that their name is at the top of the, the letter, like you mentioned. Make sure that it doesn't sound like it was just a mass email situation. And if that's the case, then then you're all good. Thank you, Cece. Okay, question three for Carly. Hi, I was wondering if you could better explain what the different genres are and how you know where your work fits into them. For example, I hear you talk about women's fiction, literary fiction, up fiction, and I'm not sure I understand the difference between the three of them. Thank you so much for you, what you do on the podcast. Love listening to you guys. Mm -hmm. I know this is a complicated one, right? So um, I always remind you guys, go to my Instagram. At the top of my Instagram, I've pinned upmarket, 
commercial and literary fiction reels so you can hear me explain them. Also, you can go to my website, carlywaters.com. It's hidden on the back end, but I'll tell you how to find it. There's an infographic, so you can just Google Carly Waters infographic. How do you know the difference between literary, marketing, commercial fiction? You'll get a great infographic with all of the information. So that's kind of the category stuff, right? Now, genre is the women's fiction, thriller, mystery, right? Like those are, that's genre. So these are kind of different things, category versus genre. And the way that I think about it is really like commercial upmarket and literary are these categorizing features that are kind of like a dial, right? It's a fine tuning. So we can like dial it up, dial it down. And this is why these things kind of blur. But with category, you know, that's how it works. With genre, we really do need to know exactly what genre you're in, whether it's the mystery, the thriller, the suspense, the women's fiction, all of that. So I understand it's confusing. Please check out my reels and and I hope that will help. Great. Question four for Cece. Hey, thank you for taking my question and everything you do for the writing community, from the workshops to individual webinars and, as always, this amazing podcast. I have a question about subgenres. I've been categorizing my work by saying I write speculative thrillers, but I'm also hearing descriptions like upmarket and high concept. Can you explain the difference between these three terms? Thanks again. It feels like these questions were very intentional, one after the other. I love it. Okay, so let's break this down. Speculative fiction refers to stories that take place in our world, but with some type of either supernatural, fantastical, imagined element, maybe futuristic. So for example, The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich, it's a novel about what happens when every adult on earth gets a box that tells them exactly when they'll die. And then upmarket, right? Carly just mentioned category versus genre. Upmarket refers to the fact that it sits somewhere between commercial fiction and literary fiction. So to go back to the the measure example, that is upmarket speculative fiction, right? But The Handmaid's Tale, to use another example, is literary speculative fiction. And high concept just means that something is very original, very easy to understand, usually in one sentence, very pitchable. So like the measure, very, very high concept. So something can be actually all three things. You can have a high concept, upmarket, speculative novel. But if something takes a little bit longer to explain, like for example, if it's a relationship-driven story, then it's usually not pitched as high concept. Hope that makes sense. I know it's a lot. Thank you, Cece. Okay, question five for Carly. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. G'day from Australia. I'm new to writing and I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge and experience through expert advice and nuanced feedback. I have two questions about memoir. One, what advice do you have for new writers who are feeling discouraged by all the talk about how difficult it is to publish a memoir nowadays unless you're a celebrity? Is there an option to instead write my book as fiction closely based on a true story? Will this be easier to publish and market? What are the pros and cons of this option versus writing it as a true non-celebrity memoir? Two, when do you suggest new memoir writers start the query process? Is it better to wait until the manuscript is completed so that it is as good as I can get it and the message and premise are super clear? Or if I have a fairly strong vision for my book, is it better to start querying early even if I'm still writing? In which case, is it okay to include an estimated word count on the query letter? Thanks, ladies. Alrighty. So this is tough because I'm I'm one of those agents that will say memoir is tough. Memoir is difficult, right? I mean, it, it honestly is. And I feel like we could teach a whole, again, CC has a whole webinar course about, about memoir writing, right? So we, we can talk for hours about this. You know, there there is an option to write it as autobiographical fiction. That is a completely different thing, but it's really up to you. It's a completely different 
type of project. And so it really just depends on, is it a memoir or is it a novel and, and how much novelizing you want to do? And then the second question was about when to start querying. So please, 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 yes, wait until it's finished. Don't start too early because we need to know that you can actually finish the project, right? If it's an essay collection, you can pitch it on proposal. And there's a question coming later in this segment about essay collection. So I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that there. But I know it's difficult, but it's really just up to you whether you want to whether you want it to be a memoir or whether you want to novelize it. Thank you, Carly. Okay, question six for Cece. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for taking my question. I'm wondering if it's appropriate to send out new query letters once you've received an offer of representation from an agent. So I've heard in some places online that it's considered sort of against etiquette to query new agents once you've received an offer, and that it's okay to nudge agents that you've already sent out letters to, but that you shouldn't really try to query new agents. But then I was reading an article by the author Jesse Burton, which includes her actual query letter to her agent Juliet Mushins. And in it, she talks about how she's already received two offers from two different agencies. So I'm just not sure what the right answer is here, or if maybe there is no right answer. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you for everything you do for writers. Really appreciate everything that you guys do. Thank you guys. Bye. So there's no code. So it really depends. Really, It's really just whatever people feel is fair and whatever guidelines the agency has in place. I will say that it's definitely okay to nudge agents whom you've already queried, which you seem to know. So yes, 100%. When it comes to querying a new agent, here's what's tricky. What are you going to write in the query letter? Like if you write that you're querying with an offer already, I'm going to know that I didn't make it to your A-list. I'm going to be wondering why you thought of me now. Why not before? Maybe the reason's a good reason, but I, I will still be wondering. And I'm also going to be assuming that you've given the original agent a promise that you're getting back to them in like, let's say two weeks or a similar timeline. So then you're going to have to include it in the query letter for me that I have only like two weeks to read your query and ask for full and then read your full. So it's not necessarily a very good look. I, I, I do you know what I mean? Like, do you have the right to do it? Absolutely. It's not wrong, but I think it's a little convoluted. I'm not sure if it's smart. Like if it were me, if it were me querying and I were in that situation, I would only maybe do this if it was, for example, there's this one agent, one, not like a handful. Okay. One who I did not include on my A-list because I was maybe super intimidated. And then I would just be honest with them. I'd be like, look, I did not add you to my A-list because I was intimidated. I am serious about this other offer. I know that two weeks is not enough time, but hey, I'm shooting my shot. So because that makes me feel like it's a one thing you know, one person situation that you are going to figure out now, as opposed to just mass querying a whole bunch of people like that to me just feels weird. But you have absolutely the right to do that. Just remember that with with all things in life, perception matters and you want to be be mindful of that. Great point, Cece. Thank you. Okay, question seven for Carly. Hello, everyone. I am a nurse and a mom and just completed the first draft of my passion project, a YA novel about disordered eating and body image issues. I know the next step is editing and polishing my manuscript, so I've been devouring your podcast to learn more about writing and publishing. I'm wondering if there are any general tips and tricks for editing. I joined a beta reader group, thanks Bianca, and have been reading my writing out loud. But what else would you recommend, and what do you look for in a polished manuscript? Thank you so much for all your help and expertise. 
All right, I'm gonna give you a quick checklist, okay? Get your pencil ready, here we go. Have you had beta readers, critique partners work on it? It sounds like yes, right? Somebody not related to you. Have you read some craft books? I'll name a few for you. Saves the Cat Writes a Novel, Writing the Breakout Novel, Craft in the Real World, Story Genius, Self-Editing for Fiction Writers, On Writing, Meander, Spiral, Explode, Plot and Structure. Next one, do you understand how the book publishing process works, right? Like, do you understand what the job is of an acquiring editor? Because once you kind of understand the job of an acquiring editor, you kind of understand how polished your book needs to be. So that's really important. Go back and listen to some of our podcast episodes where we've had editors on the podcast. That will help you understand. Have you read it aloud to yourself or someone else? And does it read like a book you'd pick up in the store, right? Like that's your ultimate goal. Like that's what we're aiming for here. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay. Question eight for Cece. Hello, Snot Yaw Mavens. Thanks so much for everything. I've binged your podcast so much that I've started to think about writing in a South African accent. My question is about how novelettes and novellas fit within the publishing landscape. Is there a market for stories that aren't novel length, but are longer than short stories? Are agents open to submissions of this type, or do they only want novel length works? I know some authors like Ted Chang have found success in this format, but are they outliers? Thanks so much. Okay, so Sonatya Mavens is a cool name. Like, I really love that. So some agents are, but it's not as common as agents who are looking for novels. And it's really tough for debut. Like, really, really tough. So make sure to check out each agent's guidelines. Like, I'm sure you'll find some that are. But again, if it were me, I would be working on a novel for my first project. And then... If you have a passion for novellas and short stories, you know, have that as a second thing you have just because of how much harder it is. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, this one's for you. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. Thank you so much for everything that you do. I love your podcast. I absolutely can't wait for it every week. Uh, it is such a help and such, uh, it really bolsters me and my efforts as I write my work in progress. My question is about genre. I always struggle to succinctly explain the genre of my novel, which is sort of literary or upmarket, but with a fantastical or magical realist element. Uh, I don't know how to say it in a concise way, but I can think of lots of examples of books that do this. Thinking, for example, The Pisces by Melissa Broder or Bunny by Mona Awad or Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. All of these are great examples of the kinds of the kind of genre that I'm writing in, but I just what do I call it? What do we call it? <laughs> Thank you so much. This overlaps a lot with Cece's answer for question four. So that, that applies to this person here as well. What do you call it, right? So I think calling something lightly speculative literary fiction is perfectly okay. You don't have to be exactly succinct when something is kind of complicated, but I also think your comps are going to do a lot of work here. So I think you're doing great. Don't be too hard on yourself here. All right. Next one for Cece. I'm more than halfway through writing my novel and I'm finding that I'm writing fast that, that seems to allow me more creativity with the plot and everything. But I'm also worried that by once I finish this first draft, it's only going to top out at maybe 40,000 words or so. So I'm wondering if I can go back on the second draft and flesh it out to, you know, double it or at least get it to 70,000 words. But what I'm thinking is maybe I should just think about spending more time in fleshing out the first draft. Or like, I, or should I wait and just flesh it out in the second draft? Thank you. Any insights into this would be most helpful. Thank you. So when it comes to the order, there's no right or wrong way to do this. Since this is your first novel, probably what you're going to have to do is 
pick one way and see if it works for you. And if it doesn't backtrack, try another way till you finally find your process. It's like everything else in life. You try it out multiple times before you find out what works for you. I will say that the most important thing is what's driving the fleshing out. And that can't be just the word count. It's not just about seeing that 40,000 word count turn into 80,000, right? Like it has to be about the, the story, the story element that you're working on. So if you finish your first draft or, you know, if you just pause now and look at whatever you have so far and you realize, oh, okay, so my character motivations, for example, they aren't super clear. Like my character is not feeling like a real person. So then I have to flesh out characterization. How can I do that in a way that keeps the story moving forward? So that will be your goal. Your goal will be to work on your character's motivation. And that will ultimately lead the word count to go up as opposed to just following an arbitrary number. And I realize that might sound like contradictory advice because we're always saying, well, a novel needs to be so, so, you know, so many words, but it's about what the driving force is because you can always tell when someone just added words for the sake of adding words. So make sure that you're, you're following that. Thank you, Cece. Okay. Question 11 for Carly. Hi, this question doesn't specifically have anything to do with writing process or publishing, but I was wondering, a question for Cece and Carly, how many books do you read per month? How many of them are for work? How many of them are for pleasure? And of all the books that you pick up to read, how many of them do you abandon partway through? Thank you. All right. This was a fun one to do my little research on. So so this is my example for, for May, right? So at the time of recording, it's May 23rd. This is coming out in May, but this is where I'm at. So I started approximately 15 books this month. That includes manuscript pitches, you know, the, like our submissions, finished books, everything. I read... I finished, read three client manuscripts. I read one published novel, Happy Place. I have one nonfiction that's a kind of ongoing. I'm reading Fat Talk, which I will finish this month. I have one book ongoing for nonfiction, and that's Cast. And I also have a Sunday New York Times subscription, so I read the paper as much as I can. So that's like my reading bucket. That's how much reading I do. And all of those 15 that I mentioned, I'm starting a lot of manuscripts that I'm not finishing. That's what the rest of those 15 are. All right. Next one's for you, Cece. Hello, my name is Jennifer, and I wanted to ask a question about a market. I know it tends to be a little slower than, say, commercial. And I was wondering, I guess, two questions. One, if it had to have, like, an inciting incident, like you would normally see in a regular um, commercial, but also if the growth of a character has to be positive over the story, does their arc have to end better than it started? Can a character kind of go backwards? Yes, you need an inciting incident. Absolutely. No, the growth does not have to be positive, right? But it should feel satisfying. Satisfying doesn't mean positive. It doesn't necessarily mean positive at all. I can think of books. I'm just going to name an example here. White Ivy. Like she did not grow at the end of that story in the way that I think most of us assume that she would. She might have regressed actually. It's incredibly satisfying though. So satisfying. So usually we need to see a character overcome something. So that overcoming needs to happen. That does not mean that they have to morally grow in a way that society tells us that they have to, right? Like the forward momentum needs to be present in the story and change needs to happen, but the growth does not have to be positive at all. Thank you, Cece. Okay, next one for Carly. Hi, ladies. My name is Razan and I'm a writer from Kuwait. 
Thank you so much for all the amazing information that you guys share with us on the podcast. It is incredibly helpful. My question is, I recently uh, met with, a, with an agent from New York who said that he really, really liked my query. But since my story is set in Kuwait and he has a writer who is Persian-American and has a story set in Iran, he does not want to represent me because he says, Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, it's all the same. Uh, needless to say, this was offensive, but beyond that, I'd like to ask you, regardless of whether or not it's offensive, should I be targeting agents who do not have writers or stories set in the Middle East since my story is set in the Middle East? Thank you so much. Well, I kind of want to apologize for this asshole, but I kind of also don't because he was an asshole. But sometimes I feel like as an agent, yeah, there's some there's some crappy agents out there. So I'm sorry that you had that experience. So for the answer, I would focus on agents who rep books that have a global lens, right? So that's kind of what I'd be focusing on and who rep books about similar themes to yours. So the global lens and the themes, like that's kind of what I would be focusing on. I wouldn't really try to make sure that you try to fit a gap on our list because in all honesty, you just don't know what the gaps on our list are, right? Because we don't know, you don't know what our clients are working on. You don't know what books, you know, we've book deals we've done behind the scenes or things that we haven't announced yet. So don't try to just, there's things that you just can't know, right? And please don't be hard on yourself about that. Just do your best, focus on, you know, the global lens and themes and, and you know, if, if you like the authors on their list, that type of thing. But but yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that happened. Thank you, Carly. Okay, question 14 for Cece. Hi, I was wondering how an author would go about asking for a a blurb from a fellow author. Is that something you can do on Instagram? Is it like a more of a formal emailed request kind of thing? I am terrified and I would love to get your thoughts. Thank you. Love me a question about blurbs. So there are many ways to do it. I guess the most traditional way is when, when the editor, agent, and author all get together. They make a master list of everyone they'd like to blurb this book and they figure out what connections they have to each person. If this is already an established author, the author does obviously know most people, but imagine that you're a debut, imagine that you don't know a lot of people. So we'll go through the list and maybe the author has been on the panel with one of the people and therefore has their contact information, or maybe the agent knows the agent who represents this other person. Maybe the editor um, knows the editor. Like there's just so many ways to figure out connections. DMing someone on social media is totally allowed. People do it all the time, but I will say that it's more common to send out emails just because it's more professional, right? Like that's the professional like route that you want to take. But do people do it? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to say also that asking for blurbs is something that gives anxiety to all authors. I have heard incredibly established authors on Twitter, and I'm so grateful for this, vent about how uncomfortable they feel. These are superstar authors, right? Like they're like uncomfortable. They have to ask for blurbs. It's so hard on them. So everyone like we're all in this together is what i'm saying right like it's 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 one boat we're on the boat so one day you're, you'll get requests too so make sure that you remember that make sure that you keep that into perspective because it's something that is just a part of this industry thank you cc yeah it's so important and we say this on the podcast all the time be a good literary citizen when people do favors for you pay it back pay it forward Pay it every which way you can. Just be a good literary citizen. Okay, question 15 for Carly. Hey, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. Two questions about social media. First, I wondered since Twitter's implosion, if you are less excited to see an author who is active on Twitter as opposed to Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, or if you've seen a move for 
platforms to other social media sites. And second, I wondered if you had any suggestions for how to avoid falling into the trap of engaging on the social media platforms with other authors and writers primarily. It feels like going from a profile that's maybe personal that provides updates on your life related to people that you know is um, maybe too familiar, but until you have a book to offer to the world, it's difficult to know exactly how to interact and, and build a platform. So thanks so much. Bye. Yeah, this is a complicated one, right? Like, I mean, the way that I think about Twitter is it's kind of mostly useless these days. So, so that's my, that's my thoughts on that. I mean, it is what it is, but for fiction, right? You guys should always be focusing on your book. And so this idea that you have to do all things as a novelist, especially before you even like, you know, emerged, you know, that's just so much pressure on you. So really focus on the book and we can always help you pivot your socials later. So if you feel like your socials are a bit more insular or a bit more like family oriented or anything like that, like we can help you figure out how to make it a bit more public facing. But here's the thing. Showing a slice of life is human. And we go on social media to engage with humans, not robots. So, you know, it's not going to get you engagement to think that you have to transition into this like, you know, hyper professional type of author robot person, right? Like that's not what you need. No matter what, you still are going to have your personality. But a way to pivot would be, for, for an example, one of the things that I've told an author recently is that, and again, this is just an example, is that they were posting pictures of their kids and their family, right? And she was like, how do I you know, how do I figure out like to navigate this way through? And and so there are lots of ways where you can, you know, post things in your close friends and family circle on Instagram, you know, if you do want to kind of keep up that content and then, you know, keep everything else in the, in the public side of things for your author content. As Bianca said, the, the way the ways that we are good literary citizens, like showing what we're reading and, and working on, right? So, you know, those are some things to, to think about, but don't be hard on yourself. We can, you know, your future agent and, and publishing team can help you pivot uh, when the time comes. But yeah, just, just be human, be yourself. And, and focus on the writing. Thank you, Kali. Question 16 for Cece. Hey, folks. I'm looking for some advice on how to write a synopsis. There's so much out there about query letters, but it seems that most agents are requiring a synopsis as part of the submission package these days, and there isn't much out there about what exactly agents are looking for in a synopsis. So if you could shed some light, I would be so grateful. Thanks so much. You're the shit. Great question. So my advice is to look at Jane Friedman's website. She has a really great piece on how to write a synopsis. It's really comprehensive without being overwhelming. So if you Google Jane Friedman plus sign how to write a novel synopsis, you'll find it easy peasy. And yeah, it's really great. I think you can find a lot of answers on Jane's website, quite honestly. When in doubt, Google Jane Friedman. Right, question 17 for Carly. Hi, Bianca, Cece, and Carly. I was listening to today's episode, um, May 11th, and was surprised to be listening to a Books with Hooks submission for work that hadn't yet been completed, never mind polished. So uh, my understanding was that we had to be really happy with the finished product before we submitted. And I would love to get some feedback that I'm heading in the right direction. I've got about you know 50,000 words under my belt. So could you please clarify your policy on that because now I'm confused and kind of kind of chomping at the bit and maybe I shouldn't be maybe there was some kind of exception you were making okay thanks this was a great question I'm actually really glad that you asked this and it's a good opportunity for for me to just kind of speak on it so what we do on the podcast is educational right and so this is an educational 
platform. So I do use it for scouting. And obviously, like I can't turn my agent brain off. So while I wouldn't have advised that person to do that professionally, it is something that we accepted for the podcast for educational purposes. So my agent policy is that I really, you know, and it's not an official policy, but you know, I just really won't consider something that isn't finished. The only book I've ever offered rep on that wasn't finished was one single memoir. And I told them when I offered rep, I was like, I never offer rep to something like a memoir that should be finished that isn't finished. And I was really hoping that they would go and finish it and come back, but they were querying widely and they ended up getting an offer that and they went with somebody else. But it, w- it was really, it was really great, you know? And so when you're really, really, really great, you can break the rules. But honestly, I don't recommend that anybody breaks the rules. And so it was risky and they did it early and, and obviously other nonfiction projects I do you know, represent things that are unfinished because we sell those on proposal. But I have never signed an incomplete novel, to my knowledge. Yeah, never plan to be the exception or the outlier. That That's my, my thinking. Okay, question 18, Cece. Hello, host of my favorite writing podcast. I have a question about libraries and distribution. I've suggested different titles to my public library in San Francisco, including the Sunset Sisters. And to my disappointment, I always get the same message. Quote, unfortunately, the item is not carried by our city-approved vendors, end quote. How do authors get their books into libraries? Is this something agents have to negotiate in the publisher-author contract? Is the process different for the U.S. versus Canada? Is it different for every library? Your insights are truly fuel for my imagination. Every episode, a new spark. Thanks for making my writing journey feel a little less lonely. Oh, what an interesting question. Okay, so this is not something that agents negotiate in the contract. And yes, it does vary according to each territory. Obviously, if you're considering multiple offers from publishers, you can ask about their distribution, right? But it's not something that will go into your contract. Books are on a supply chain like everything else. And so they don't work with all suppliers. It's something that publishers handle on on their back end. Thank you, Cece. Okay, next question for Carly. I have a question about query letters. If you've retained a freelance editor to do a developmental edit of your manuscript and you revise your manuscript based on that feedback, do you mention that in your query? Do you identify the editor by name? My second question is about including a title for your manuscript. If you don't love the title you came up with or you feel unsure about it, is it better to use work in progress or perhaps include some alternate titles? Thank you so much. Love the podcast and appreciate all that you do. All right. I don't, I don't think you need to identify that you've done that. I kind of just think it's a bit of a waste of a word count, you know, like we only have so many words in our query letter. And then regarding your alternate title question. So I do think that you should have a list of alternate titles. The place that I think you should put that is actually maybe in your synopsis at the end of your synopsis, you can maybe say like, here are some alternate titles. Like I do think there's a place for them. And I think you should have them. I shouldn't, I just don't think anybody should go into a query letter appearing ambivalent in any way. So just appear as confident as you can, just pick pick the best title you can. Thanks, Carly. Okay, question 20 for Cece. Hi, my name is Mary Bell. I am a first-time author. I finished writing my contemporary romance novel and is currently in its first round of edits with my fantastic editor, who has suggested for me to think about rewriting it in present tense. I wrote it in past. I love reading in past so long as it is a quick moving page turning read with a decent amount of description. That's how I like to read. It is how I like to write and how I most naturally write. So I I did try to take my first chapter and turn it present 
tense and it just felt awkward. It felt awkward to write it. It felt awkward for me to reread it that way. And I really truly didn't like it. So my question is, is there a clear winner from a publisher standpoint, a writer standpoint, or a reader standpoint that present versus past tense is best for a contemporary romance novel? So first I want to say congratulations on taking that note and making the change and then considering whether or not you like the note. A lot of people are resistant to editorial notes and the fact that you got the editorial note, made the change to a chapter, and then evaluated that to me tells me you're a pro. So that's amazing. There is no clear winner in the genre. It can be present tense. It can be past tense. Both work, right? Like there's absolutely no right or wrong way to do this. If you've tried and you have, and you genuinely don't think it's right for your story, you are the creator, right? Like you are the designer of this world. You are not a seamstress who's just making adjustments here and there based on someone else's vision. The vision is yours. So of course, try, be open to feedback, be mindful of the fact that there are people out there giving you good advice. But if you have genuinely tried and this is your vision, stick to it. Great advice, Cece. Okay, question 21 for Carly. Hi, ladies. I wrote a memoir manuscript about 15 years ago. The writing was terrible. Picked it back up five years later in an MFA program, did a second rewrite, which was slightly less terrible, but lacking any insight. I just took it off the shelf this year and about halfway through the third rewrite. And I'm starting to wonder if this would actually be better positioned as a book of essays rather than a full manuscript. And I'm wondering if I can query agents at this point uh, with what half of what I have and ask them about this dilemma and what their guidance would be, or if I need to just finish this entire manuscript and then begin the querying process with an agent who might then tell me, yes, turn it into essays. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, I said we were going to come back to essays and, and, and here we are. So really an essay collection doesn't have to be finished. It is much more in the nonfiction bucket of things because you, there can be an essay collection about anything, right? And so the fact that yours might be a kind of more memoir, kind of like a linked essays type of style, perfectly fine. And I'll, I'll give you an example of one that I think is really great. There's this book by Megan O'Connell called, And Now We Have Everything on Motherhood Before I Was Ready. I love this book. And I think this is an excellent example of when essay collections work so, so, so well. And you'll see that they're all linked, obviously, thematically, but this isn't a play by play of what happens, you know, exactly in every in every moment, like essays are closed systems, kind of like short stories, right? So it, every essay is has this beginning, middle and end, right? Like it's an essay, whereas chapters in a memoir, a completely different function. So again, there's a very clear arc and very conscious storytelling, no matter what you're doing here. It's not a cop out to write essays. Again, it's just a very, very different style of writing. And they're very hard in their own ways. They must stand alone and be linked and and do so much, right? And there has to be character arc and everything. So if that's what is speaking to you, I think that that's completely fine. And you can pitch it on a partial, you just have, a, have to have a very clear idea of where the rest of this is going. It's just it's a little bit riskier, but totally doable. Thanks, Carly. Yeah, my favorite memoir and essays is Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. And you know, it jumps all over the place in terms of time and space and themes, etc. And some readers said that they found that very disjointed and they struggled to move along because there wasn't a linear timeline, but but that's one that I absolutely loved. Okay, third last question for Cece. 
As the last of this season's literary conference notifications read for many of us, rejections seem to finally have been issued, what with breadloaf dashing a thousand hearts, mine included. Um, I'm reminded yet again why Twitter is to be avoided, but also some fresh questions arise. What do criterion like candidates likely to benefit from participation at such institutes like Breadloaf mean, and how is that measured? Wouldn't we all benefit? And if the criterion means something else, why not be transparent about that? I would love to have my favorite thruple spend a session with literary conference insiders breaking this down and letting writers know how to apply and what they consider. Thanks. First of all, thank you so much for that suggestion. Like, so awesome. Yes, I think we should do that too. We're going to look into it. So I will say that I suspect the reason why they don't break it down is because it varies so much. Remember, we're in the creative industry and nailing down what people are looking for is a huge challenge. Oftentimes, it does sound super vague. I want unforgettable characters. I want, you know, unputdownable stories. And that's because we lead with our hearts. We fall in love with a work before we know why we fell in love. It's chemistry. And a lot of it, especially in a breadloaf situation, any conference situation, really, like it depends on the pool of applicants. So obviously I can't speak to the process, but for example, I imagine they're looking for diversity so they don't end up only taking people who for who write the same genre, right? Like they can't you can't all be writing in the same genre. That's that's not that's not really practical. So there's so many variables and I think your idea is awesome. Congratulations for putting yourself out there. Congratulations for doing the work. I know it can be super intimidating and daunting and honestly frustrating when it's it's a no, but you will only make it if you try. So you're on the right path. They only win if you give up. Don't forget that. Right. Question 23, Carly. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. Thank you for everything you do to support aspiring writers. My question comes to you from the query trenches. At what point is it appropriate to nudge agents either that have your query or have requested pages? I know that you have said often that you should nudge them if you have an offer representation and that path seems pretty clear. But what if, for example, you're a finalist in a major writing contest? Is that a time when it's appropriate to reach back out and let them know about this new status? And if you were to reach out, what sort of message should you say? Thanks so much. I'm always going to say follow guidelines, follow guidelines, follow guidelines, right? Whatever whatever the policy is. So really nudging after between three to six months is a general policy and you can find those policies on agents' websites. That said, if you were nominated for something like a Whiting Award, right? Like that's the type of thing I want to know. But for example, if it's something that's a bit more regional, potentially has less clout, it's just, to be honest, just less useful to me because nothing is really going to change my mind other than my own opinion of the project. The only reason I care about things that maybe are a larger award or a contest that's judged by other agents is that, again, somebody might sweep you away when I was also considering the project and interested in it. So that's the kind of thing I want to know. Also, understand the fine print of, of what you're submitting to for contests and things like that. So you, you are free to query at the same time. But I am going to make up my own mind about the project. So other people's opinions don't affect my opinion. Thank you, Carly. Okay, phew, we're at the finish line. Last question for Cece. 
Hello, podcast friends. I am wondering if there are tiers of rejection letters. And by tiers, I mean like layers as opposed to tiers that fall from your eyes. Because I just started querying and I got two rejection letters that were obviously form letters, but were both kind and encouraging. And I'm just wondering if it's now standard practice for everybody to be kind and encouraging or if agents sort of choose which type of letter that they send when they reject someone. Thanks so much. Have a great day. I definitely hope that everyone is kind and encouraging. If that's a new trend, I am all for it. So so I will answer this for myself because we don't know what everyone's doing. Like we don't get together and we don't have like meetings about, you know, what kind of rejection letters are you sending? So I have three types, I'd say, three main types of rejection letters I send. I really dislike this term, but let's call a spade a spade. The first one isn't sent by me. It's sent by our assistant who handles the submissions inbox. So if I request a full and it ends up not being a fit for my list, I will let our assistant know and she'll send along a standard letter to the writer, letting them know and know that does not include any feedback for the various reasons we've already covered on the podcast. There's no time. It's too subjective, etc. And then the second type of letter is the one I'll send directly. So sometimes I'm in direct communication with a writer about a project. For example, an acquisitions editor might have referred this writer to me. She asked me if she could connect us. I said, yes, we're connected now. And I got the manuscript directly from them. And in that case, I will take the time to write a more personalized email that still does not include detailed feedback. But I will give a big picture reason why the story wasn't for me. I don't know. Maybe I had a plausibility issue. Maybe the pace wasn't working. I don't know. And then the third type of rejection letter isn't actually a rejection letter necessarily. It's an R&R. And that's an invitation to revise and resubmit. These are very rare. But when they happen, they they can work out really well. So essentially what that is, is I'll read something and it's really great, but it's just not ready yet. So picture like I'm looking for a cookie and instead of cookie, I get cookie dough, right? Like the cookie dough looks promising, but it's not a cookie yet. So I will write a detailed report to this person to say, okay, here's what I think you need to do to your story, right? Like here are my editorial notes. It's quite comprehensive. And I invite them to resubmit if they want to. They're not obligated to do so. They get to read my report and go, you're out to lunch. I don't want to work with you. That's totally fine. But if I see promise in a story and I think it's just a matter of timing, I will do that. It is, however, very, very rare. Like maybe I've done this four times in my in my entire career. Right. Thank you, Cece. Thank you, Carly, for answering all of those questions. Remember, we will start this segment up again in August. We'll open the hotlines then. Call us with all of those questions. We look forward to answering them. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hi everyone, welcome to a comp session with one of our favorite bookish people, Emily Summer from East City Bookshop. Emily, welcome back. Thank you so much, Bianca. It is a pleasure to be back. And is there anything you want to tell us that's happening at the store coming up or where would you like to direct us to so that our listeners can see all of that information? 
Oh, that is so nice of you to ask. Thank you so much. And I have to say the listeners are so good about supporting the store and checking out the store when they're in town. So please keep it up. I love to meet you when you come in. If you're in D.C., please come to East City Bookshop. And if you're not in D.C., then go to eastcitybookshop.com and you can browse everything we've got going on. Our staff picks, our new releases, upcoming events, what we're reading for our book club. You can sign up for our e-newsletter and stay in touch from afar. So thank you to everybody who is supporting E-City and all the other independent bookstores out there. Amazing, Emily. Okay, so as per usual, let's dive into our comp requests. Here's our first one. Hi there. I'm wondering if you can help me out with comps for my debut novel. It's a millennial memoir in essays, and it explores mental health issues through funny and sometimes crude anecdotes. More specifically, it discusses navigating the world as a highly sensitive person or super feeler. So that's someone who feels emotions more deeply than the average person and how that has manifested in different life stages and events. For comps so far, I'm thinking Jenny Lawson's Furiously Happy or Broken in the Best Possible Way, and maybe also Samantha Irby's essays like We Are Never Meeting in Real Life or Wow, No Thank You. I'd love to hear what you think. Thanks so much. So for our first one, our listener mentions two writers that I love, Jenny Lawson and Samantha Irby. To to the Samantha Irby comp, I say absolutely yes. When I hear memoir and essays, very funny and sometimes crude, I immediately think of the great Samantha Irby, whose newest memoir or essay collection is out right now. So I think absolutely that's right on the money. I think, I feel like Jenny Lawson, the Jenny Lawson comp, is a good one, maybe a little old. I would also throw out Allie Brosh in that same, it seems to fit, but maybe a little bit too too old to be super useful. Because of the millennial nature of the collection, I'll also suggest one that's coming out soon called All the Gold Stars by Rainsford Stoffer. But I think between those, oh, and Lindy West, I feel like if you're going to mention Samantha Irby, look at look at what Lindy West has done and mention Lindy West. I think that is that is an apt comparison for anything that is very funny, but deals with whatever our millennials are going through. So Samantha Irby, Lindy West, and then I would look at Rainsford Stoffer's forthcoming collection, All the Gold Stars. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, next one. I love your podcast and appreciate your passion helping aspiring authors. I'm looking for a comp title for my contemporary fiction novel set in Texas following a newly widowed mother who finds herself near destitute and in desperate need to keep her interior design career intact. Her plan is to rent out the family's inherited lake house for income, never anticipating the discovery of felony secrets her husband left there, his actions bringing danger to the family. When a new client, pivotal to her job security, is a surprising kindred soul in both her love of preserving historical buildings and trying to heal wounds, she must find answers to questions about the man she thought she knew, the danger he put her in, and her right to future happiness. I feel good about my first comp title, Janelle Brown's Watch Me Disappear, for its voice match, synergy of secrets left behind in death, and how much we really know about those we love. I'm searching for a comp for themes of career fears and insecurities, moving toward the grief and an unexpected second chance at love. I find Elizabeth Stroud's O. William possible for its bearing of the soul honesty and reflections about grief. However, my tone and style are not a match. Mine is not literary. She's way too big, and there is no unexpected romance that shows the protagonist a different path. Do you have any ideas? Thank you. Okay, I love, you know, we've got deep secrets, unexpected romance, it's contemporary, all the good things. I think that the suggestion of Watch Me Disappear is right on the money. I think that's a perfect one. I think Janelle Brown will capture that 
the tone of the mystery, perhaps an unexpected romance, a lot of high stakes family drama. I would say, oh, William, I would agree that oh, William does not sound quite right. Oh, William, Elizabeth Strout is absolutely one of my favorites of all time, but her books are so contemplative that I don't think they have the plot that a comp title for this description deserves. So I would suggest one that I think I have mentioned in the past because it's a good husband disappeared. Let's dig into the family secrets. What happened? Where did he go? What What do I do next? And that's Good Night Beautiful by Amy Malloy. And it has that same Janelle Brown, fast pacing, good character development. And I think I think that one will really fit the bill. Wonderful. All right. Next one. Hi, y'all. I'm looking for comps for my upmarket novel, The Healing Houses. Told in two perspectives and two time periods, it follows artist Elaine Montague, who has been in hiding for 10 years from Michelle, the leader of a cult who she thinks has been searching for her and with whom she once had a dangerous obsession. Elaine becomes drawn back into her obsession when her ex-boyfriend from the cult needs help retrieving his wife and daughter, which brings her face to face with Michelle. Elaine's art is how she copes, and she goes from a fledgling artist to her dream solo art opening, but needs to maintain her sanity in order to paint. Three deaths in the cult bring suspicion around Michelle, thus suspense to the novel. In the spirit of My Dark Vanessa, it deals with forbidden love, the dangerous powers of charisma, and the healing with art. My other comp has been The Girls by Emma Klein. Thank you. Okay, anybody who follows my comp suggestions knows that I love a cult. So I'm in this one and I'm I'm here to read The Healing Houses whenever it comes out because we've got someone in hiding from the leader of a cult and we need help, you know, getting someone to escape the cult. I am I am here for that. I really like the comps of My Dark Vanessa and The Girls. I think those both seem to capture the tone and the stakes. I would add Eden Lepucky's forthcoming Time's Mouth, which is also a a post-cult story and I think would fit. And then we mentioned Janelle Brown's Watch Me Disappear in the last title. And I for this one, I would also suggest Janelle Brown, but I would suggest Janelle Brown's I'll Be You. And in that case, it is it's two sisters, they're twins, and one twin is hoping to rescue the other from the grasp of a cult. And it, it has real the girls vibes as well. But I think between all those, you're really onto something. And I, for one, will be at the front of the line. Awesome, Emily. Thank you. Next one. Hi, The Shit Team. I love your comp segment. Thank you for your invaluable insights and Emily's limitless recommendations. I'm seeking comps for my memoir about a young doctor whose life is upended when her father is diagnosed with ALS, an incurable terminal neurodegenerative disease. It explores the harrowing struggles they face as a family as the disease progressively robs him of the ability to walk, talk, eat, move, and eventually breathe. Forced to confront the inevitability of death and make peace with life's impermanence, along the way she learns to appreciate the gift of life, time, and those you hold dear. My book explores topics of anticipatory grief, disability, medicine, family dynamics, and the intersection of cultures in a migrant family. The tone is emotive, heartbreaking yet hopeful, a testament to the strength of family, community, and the human spirit. Readers will ponder questions like, how do you live with the knowledge that someone you love is going to die? And what makes life meaningful in the face of death, as in Paul Kalanithi's When Breath Becomes Air? though that is about a doctor's own battle with illness, and I assume is too old and too big to comp. Unlike many conventional memoirs, mine is written in the present tense. 
I feel that gives the story more immediacy and emotion as readers experience the events like I did in real time. I'm struggling to find relevant memoir comps that are also written in present tense. Can you recommend any? I would be so grateful. Thank you. So memoirs are one of my favorite genres. This sort of memoir that blends the heartbreaking and the hopeful is one of my favorites. And as soon as this listener said anticipatory grief, I thought of one of my favorite memoirs of the last year, and that's Mary Laura Philpott's Bomb Shelter, which is newly out in paperback. It is so smart. It is both heartbreaking and hopeful, more hopeful than heartbreaking, because in her case, it's not, she's not dealing with a diagnosis that is dire and terminal like ALS, but she is dealing with the fear of what a diagnosis might mean for her teenage son. At the, as the book starts, her teenage son, who has otherwise been completely healthy, has a very frightening and potentially catastrophic medical event. So spoiler alert, in his case, it turns out not to be something that is that is terminal or fatal, but she does a beautiful job at wrestling with how do we deal with loving our loved ones when we know that we cannot keep them safe. So I think Bomb Shelter by Mary Laura Philpott is a really terrific comp for this memoir. I also think that The Bright Hour by Nina Riggs is one that could work. It is more recent than When Breath Becomes Air, not as big, so not the sort of momentous comp that is too aspirational. And I'm not sure, it's it's not written in real time, present tense. I'm not sure if The Bright Hour by Nina Riggs is present tense, but it is a memoir of a dying woman. And of course, she's it, it was finished posthumously, but as she's writing it, she's writing it knowing that she is going to die. So in that way, it captures sort of what happens in When Breath Becomes Air, although she herself is not a doctor. For the doctor piece of it, I would suggest looking at Michelle Harper's The Beauty in Breaking. And again, that is, that is a doctor's memoir. It is not dealing with a family member's diagnosis and illness, but it does capture sort of what it feels like to be a doctor grappling with a lot of really heavy subjects. And then I would mention two of my favorite memoirs of all time because of this heartbreaking and hopeful aspect, and that's Elizabeth Alexander's The Light of the World. In that, she's not dealing with the anticipatory grief of knowing that someone you love is going to die, but the very sudden death of her husband. But the way that she writes about it is so captivating, so wise, and so incredible that it's worth reading. Even if it's not the right comp, I would I recommend it to everybody who's listening. And the same with Jason Green's Once More We Saw Stars, which I've mentioned on the podcast in the past. It's a really beautiful look at a father who lost his very small child in a horrific and sudden accident, but it manages to be both. I mean, he's dealing with the most heartbreaking thing you can think of, and yet it is so loving and hopeful and optimistic ultimately, which is just a, a wonderful combination. I marvel at how Elizabeth Alexander and Jason Green were able to do that in their books. And then because we're talking about a father's diagnosis and the inevitability of a father's death, I have to mention what was probably one of my favorite books of 2022, and that's Lost and Found by Catherine Schultz. So you might know Catherine 
from her writings in the New Yorker. She won, I think she won a Pulitzer for a piece that had nothing to do with a father or or an illness of a loved one, but it was called The Really Big One about a Pacific Northwest earthquake that might happen. I mentioned that only because it's one of those pieces that once you read it, you will find yourself thinking about it for the next decade as I have, because she's just that good. But Lost and Found is both about Catherine's loss of her father and about how how she dealt with that grief at the same time that she was falling in love with her now wife. Just a beautiful book. So I I recommended it, even if not as a comp, just as a wonderful read. And that's that for number four. <laughs> that was a lot. Wow. that They all sound so powerful. They all sound so incredible. We hear from people on the podcast all the time that you are adding hugely to their to-be-read piles. So I know you're adding to mine. Okay. Here's our next one. I'm struggling to find the best comps for my first-person POV coming home story, Daddy's Little Coffinist. It has the dark details of the mostly dead things and the dry, dysfunctional humor of This Is Where I Leave. Neither is right, and I'd really appreciate your suggestions. Exiting Stony Brook Wellness Retreat for the third time, Alyssa Rattree has an epiphany. She's broke, unable to pay for her therapy or flat. It's time to return home and sell two of his funeral services, her father's legacy. The property needs repairs, forcing Alyssa into the work she vowed never to do again. Gloved up and bombing machine humming, she's immediately confronted with another grim reality. The body on the table is her old classmate, Sarah Jean. Among Sarah Jean's family photos is a regrets list, end-of-life people saying what they do differently. Certain this is how Sarah Jean won her perfect, albeit short, life. Alyssa decides this is the means to changing her own. She'll either change her entire life or die trying. Basically, it's Alyssa learning how to live again, trusting people and making friends while finding closure of her father's suicide. Thank you. Okay, so I I love the sound of this one. I love the idea of working in a funeral home. And I love the mention of the humor of This Is Where I Leave You, which is one of my favorites, and Mostly Dead Things, which if you haven't checked that one out, please do, because it is in a league of its own. But our, our caller says neither one of those is exactly right. So what I will suggest instead of or in addition to those the books of Annie Hartnett. So Annie Hartnett manages to write about grief and or and just sort of darkness and and figuring things out and finding your way in both of her books, Rabbit Cake and Unlikely Animals. And Unlikely Animals doesn't have a funeral home setting or like the taxidermied nature of mostly dead things, but there's something it's I, I don't want to give too much away, but it's got a real interesting dark edge but also very funny. So I would suggest looking at Annie Hartnett and then to perhaps kind of capture the dry humor of This Is Where I Leave You, I would suggest Catherine Newman's We All Want Impossible Things, which is still out in hardcover. It's that recent. And it's about a woman who is struggling with her marriage and she's finding her way professionally too. She's got teen teenage kids that she's figuring out how to mother and her best, best friend is dying in hospice. And despite all that, it is laugh out loud funny and just so witty. Uh, It's a remarkable book. So I would look at that one. Marvelous. Thank you. I'm adding that to my list as well. Okay. Number six. Hi, I'm looking for comps for my literary fiction novel, A Million Ordinary Things, about a widow's first year as a single parent to the daughter she loves but never wanted. I called in before and Emily offered great comps, the best one being Want by Lynn Steger Strong, 
that was super spot on, but I failed to include a couple storylines the first time I called. So here I am again. Marion is an Italian studies dropout turned stay-at-home mother, and when she learns of her late husband's money mismanagement, she gets a job in a deli. Classism is a theme in this novel, as her well-to-do husband's family looked down on her and her blue-collared upbringing. Marion's also obsessed with Italy, and there are a few flashbacks taking place there, as well as some present-day scenes of Marion working as a butcher in Sicily. Finally, there's a component like the My Dark Vanessa storyline of a relationship with a gaping age difference. Only in this story, Marion is 14 years older than the man she dates. Anything resembling these themes would be so appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So number six is someone who has written in before and and wanted to add in some details for perhaps a follow-up. The the one that worked the last time she said was Want by Lynn Steger Strong. So I'm so glad to hear that that one felt like it was appropriate. The added details of the Italian studies dropout, flashbacks to Italy, to Sicily, the fact that she's now working in a deli. I don't know if I have anything additional to add that hits those points, but I will say that the idea of those first years of motherhood to a daughter about whom you might feel conflicted as to whether you wanted to have kids or not, and the, the struggling with your current life versus your previous professional aspirations. I would suggest Perfect Tunes by Emily Gould, and it is entirely possible that I suggested that one the, the last time. And if so, I apologize, but but that's what I got. Thank you, Emily. Okay, here's our next one. Hello from Wales. Um, my name's Louise, and I love your podcast. I recommend it to everybody. I'm looking for a comp for a legal thriller where the amateur sleuth is a non-qualified legal assistant under suspicion herself. The nearest comp I can find is something like the Pelican Brief, where a non-lawyer stumbles across a big conspiracy. But I'm looking for something more modern. If you have any recommendations, I would much appreciate them. Thank you. Hello to Louise from Wales. Thank you so much for listening and calling in. So for this one, I'm thinking, I'm, I was trying to think of like conspiracy legal thrillers where there's a non, the, the non-lawyer, even if it's not a legal assistant, where it's not someone who's a lawyer and it's not someone who's a detective like you would expect in a lot of thrillers. I agree that John Grisham is probably too big and too old, but that's a very helpful comp for me because when I hear somebody have something that they feel is Grisham-esque, then I immediately suggest All Her Little Secrets by Wanda Morris, which I have sold over and over again as a John Grisham thriller if the protagonist and the author were a black woman in the South instead of one of John Grisham's white dudes. And, and yes, there are, there are, he has some white women too, but if it were, if it were not the John Grisham white protagonist, we've got Wanda Morris, who's writing just an outstanding legal thriller in all her little secrets. So I would look at that. The, the protagonist is a lawyer, but she is in-house counsel. So she really functions in the story as a businesswoman, an executive who just happens to be a lawyer who uncovers this conspiracy. So I think that would be a super one. And then another one that takes the it's not a legal thriller but it is a non non-lawyer non-policeman non-detective and that's grave reservations by sherry priest and that is a woman who is our detective there our makeshift detective there is a travel agent who has had a psychic vision and she saved someone from getting on a flight and as a result has sort of been roped into 
these investigations. I don't know if the tone of that one would be right. It's very entertaining, but it's a little more whimsical than a John Grisham or Wanda Morris. Whimsical might be the wrong word, but it's it it reads a little lighter. And then for another one that could possibly work depending on the tone and depending on the characters, the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections by Eva Jurchik. And that is just as you can tell, it's about books. And that is, I think she's a, she's a librarian or like a manuscript collector and she gets caught up in a missing person and a missing manuscript and a missing mystery in that way. So those are some options for Louise. Oh, I'm Sound very intriguing. Okay, here's our next one. Hi, thank you so much for what you're doing. I am looking for help with comps for my literary slash upmarket novel. Here's the pitch. When all the lies MC told after her brother's tragic death result in her fiance going missing 14 years later, MC is forced to face the life she has run from if she wants a chance to save what's left of her family and herself. Part suspense, part family saga, part love story, this novel is written in dual timelines and is set in an insular small town in the upper Midwest. It's just as tender as it is dark and brooding, and it balances character development with plot-driven writing. I have one solid comp, The Paper Palace. For general tone, dual timelines, a main character whose life is thrown off trajectory by a traumatic event in her adolescence, and her present-day situation is forcing her to revisit that trauma. Emotional suspense and for a discussion-driven ending, but there's no disappearance that needs to be solved. I also thought about Little Fires Everywhere because my novel also touches on social commentary of familial expectations and white supremacy, but I know it is massively successful, older, and there's no disappearance. Any help would be greatly appreciated. I adored The Paper Palace, so I was thrilled to hear that The Paper Palace feels like a correct comp for this literary upmarket book. I agree that Little Fires Everywhere is probably a little bit older. I don't know that it matters that there's no disappearance because I think if we've got the same general tone and the same emotional suspense and the same pacing and sort of feel, I don't know that it matters that there's no disappearance, but I would agree that it is probably a little bit too big. So instead of Little Fires Everywhere, I would suggest both or either Miracle Creek and Happiness Falls, both by Angie Kim. So Miracle Creek came out a few years ago. Happiness Falls is about to come out this fall. And both of them do what the Paper Palace did, which is they read like a mystery. You you have to turn the page. You have to figure out what happened. And there is a mystery in the center of both books. But really, they're family dramas. And they're stories about, about the inner dynamics in these families. And they, too, like Little Fires Everywhere, deal with issues of race and white supremacy and how that how that feels to the characters in these books. Happiness Falls, which is the one that is about to come out, does in fact deal with a central disappearance. It has a brilliant first line and a brilliant hook. And that hook is that a father goes on a hike with his nonverbal teenage son. The son returns, the father does not, and the child is not able to verbally describe where the father went. And so that it is the, the mystery of the father's disappearance. So I think both of those would fit this. It doesn't have the same family secrets over years the way that this one in the Paper Palace does, but it is a family drama and a mystery all wrapped into one. Very readable and compelling. And if you haven't had Angie on the podcast, Bianca, she is so generous with her time and such a wonderful conversationalist. So I bet she would be a great podcast guest. A direct result of mentioning The Paper Palace means that I will mention Little Monsters 
by Adrienne Brodeur. That's another book that's about to come out. Very Paper Palace. So if Paper Palace feels right, absolutely check out Little Monsters. And if you liked Paper Palace and you can't wait for Little Monsters, then just as a as a reader, add add to that TBR. Adrienne Brodeur wrote a wonderful memoir called Wild Game that feels like a real life sort of Paper Palace. It's It's got the same beach setting. It's got the same parents who are perhaps not acting in the best interests of the children and they definitely aren't in wild game and it's just wonderful like privilege secrets drama it's got it all but i think that little monsters is a novel that's about to come out and that is one that i would look at since the paper palace was the one given as a good comp thank you emily okay here's our next one Hi, um, I just want to say thank you so much for all of your wonderful insight. You have guided me along my writing journey, and thank you in advance for the comparative titles. I'm looking for comps for my 70,000-word rom-com set at a fancy destination wedding in Hawaii where the maid of honor and best man get together. There's messy family drama and a reappearing ex. Also, it does get a little steamy. This is not an enemies to story, which has given me trouble because it seems like everything I find to do with a maid of honor and a man to enter the industry. Thank you so much. Okay, I just got back from Hawaii, so I'm eager to read a rom-com that's set at a fancy destination in Hawaii. So no pressure, but I will I will be lining up for this one as well. This one was tricky because I think that our caller is right that it's hard to find a book like this, a rom-com that is not enemies to lovers. But two that came to mind are The Secret Bridesmaid by Katie Birchall, which I absolutely adored. It doesn't have an exotic destination wedding setting, but it does have a wedding and it does have some messy, some messiness. It's not that steamy, but it's lots and lots of fun. I loved that book. It turned me into a real Katie Birchall fan. And then I would also suggest Meet Me in Paradise by Libby Hubsher, because that one does have the travel aspect to it. And it's not, I don't think it's quite enemies to lovers. So I would look at The Secret Bridesmaid and Meet Me in Paradise and fingers crossed that one of those will at least lead you in the right direction. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. We've got three more to go. Here's our next one. Hello, thank you so much for the podcast and this comp section. It has made writing and querying much less stressful. I am writing a first-person POV historical novel that leans to upmarket or book club style about a 24-year-old Jewish woman in New York City in the 1950s who gets wrapped up in a world of organized crime. I've been saying that it is the personality of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel meets the world of The Godfather or The Sopranos. For comps in historical fiction, I'm leaning towards novels that are centered around strong women like Natasha Solomon's House of Gold or Stuart Curtain's The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. I also look up to writers like Kate Quinn and Kristen Hanna. Any advice you have for strong comps for my upcoming query letter would be so appreciated. Thank you so much. So I love the tagline for this. The personality of Mrs. Maisel meets the world of The Godfather or The Sopranos. I love that. I think that 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 tells me so much about the book. So bravo. I think that's fantastic. The first thing I thought of is another book that I have recommended here before, although for a different purpose, and that's The Family by Naomi Krupitsky, which is also set in the world of New York City organized crime. It starts in the 20s and goes to maybe the 40s. I'm not sure if we get all the way to the 50s, but it's definitely going to have that 
historical mob vibe and is a and it has two very strong female characters at the forefront. So it's really the story of their friendship, but you get all the organized crime dynamics because the both of the main characters have fathers who are in that world. I love that book and it's also excellent on audio if you're an audiobook listener. And then because we are looking for historical upmarket book club fiction with very strong women a la Natasha Solomon or Kate Quinn, Kristen Hanna. So since we are looking for strong women, upmarket book club fiction, and our caller mentioned Kate Quinn and Kristen Hanna, I would add to that list, take a look at Pam Jenoff, Christina Baker Klein, and Jillian Cantor and see if any of those, they write historical fiction with very strong female characters, strong women, both Pam Jenoff and Jillian Cantor, I think often feature Jewish main characters. So I would look at those and see if any of their books or just their general tone fits here. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. This is our second last one. Hello, I'm looking for com titles for my contemporary rom-com about an American tourist who unexpectedly finds herself stranded in a totalitarian regime country and must take up temporary residency with the only person she knows from the flight, and he happens to be her enemies, the man who broke her heart years earlier. Right now, I can describe it as a character Piper from the book This Happened Last Summer or the character Alexis from show Schitt's Creek meets the movie The Terminal, only instead of the States, my character gets stuck in a country similar to Krakosia, and she also doesn't spend the entire book in the airport. She actually spends her time in the city. Thank you so much. Okay, so this one has me cracking up just thinking about it because I'm thinking about Schitt's Creek meets the terminal and just I'm so curious and my interest is piqued. Because we're dealing with sort of a stranded tourist, I don't know if this captures the totalitarian regime, but it definitely captures the contemporary nature of the rom-com and the, the stranded aspect, and that's The Layover by Lacey Walden, which as as the title suggests, it's a flight attendant who winds up stuck on a on an extra long layover with her with a nemesis. And then I would also suggest Just Haven't Met You Yet by Sophie Cousins. And that's another one where you're on holiday, someone's on holiday. And in that one, two bags are switched and the holiday is spent trying to to meet the person who's got this other bag. So it's sort of a holiday rom-com, but that one might work as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, here's our last one. Hi, Bianca and Emily. Thank you so much for doing this. My novel is historical fiction set in ancient Rome. It's intended to be like a kind of Monte Cristo type of tale. And I would say it's going for a Robert Graves-like tone, but I guess that's probably what every historical fiction writer with a setting in ancient Rome is hoping for. It is written in third person, and it's intended to give a broad look at the day-to-day life of the early empire, but um, a deeper look at some of the major social and political issues of the day. The compressed time moves the story along relatively quickly, but it is mixed with points of extended secondary character development for balance and some structure, um, which adds depth and brings the overall picture together better, hopefully anyway. Um, So any recommendations would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. So I see why our caller here suggested Robert Graves, because I'm trying to rack my brain and think of more recent historical fiction set in ancient Rome, and I'm, I'm coming up empty. So I, I, I see where you're going with these classic 
suggestions. Four more, some more recent suggestions that might work. I would suggest Dan Jones's book, Essex Dogs. So Dan Jones is a historian, but has written his first, I think it's his first novel. It is not ancient Rome. It's set during the Hundred Years War. But I think the feel, the scope, and the tone is going to be what you're looking for and what you're working toward. In that same vein, I would suggest Simon Sebag Montefiore, and again, another historian who also writes fiction. And he has a trilogy about Stalinist Russia. So again, not ancient Rome. It's a you know, different historical period, obviously. But I think it's going to have that same feel and scope. And I think it would be the same reader. And the first of that trilogy was called Sashenka. And that's very like Dr. Zhivago-esque, if, if Dr. Zhivago feels right. I would suggest Hilary Mantel, again, different, completely different time period. But if that, if the literary tone is right, I think you might as well mention her again. That's a, she's a a heavyweight, was a heavyweight, but I think we're working here with an area that is not completely overrun and there's not a ton out there. So I think that might be worth mentioning. Slightly more recent and less famous would be Kate Quinn, who someone mentioned earlier as an example in their comp. Kate Quinn has a book called The Mistress of Rome. So that would be worth considering because I can't remember the year. I think that's pre her World War II books, her spy thrillers that have sort of launched her on the map. But Mistress of Rome, I believe, was before that. And then one that is probably the most recent and perhaps the most on point is The Wolf Den by Elodie Harper, and that's set in ancient Pompeii. So that one could feel more similar. But I think all of those are options depending on the scope and tone of the work. And that's it. That's amazing. Emily, thank you again for joining us. We, For our listeners, we're taking a break from the segment until August. So we'll open up our lines again early in August so that you can call in with all of the comps. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Bianca. Right. And after Emily, we're now moving to RJ Witherow from Parnassus Books. RJ, welcome and thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. This month, we didn't have a lot of science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction. But remember, for our listeners, we are taking a break in June and July, and then we're coming back in August. So for all of you writing in the genre, please try and get in your queries early in August so that RJ has enough time to go through them. A lot of you wait for the very last minute, and it's difficult for our specialists to you know, research the comps in that time. Right, RJ, let's kick us off with the first request. Hi, The Shit Team. I am looking for recommendations for comps for my debut novel, The Witch's Duel. It is an adult urban fantasy. After finding out she is a witch, Cammie Lancaster has to train for and then participate in a witch's duel that consists of three deadly challenges in order to win her spot as coven leader and save the coven from her half-brother's wicked and immoral leadership. I currently have The Witches of Scotland, The Dream Dancers by Stevie P. Atchison, and The Discovery of Magic by Michelle Maddow as comps. They both have main characters that are adults or new adults finding out they have powers and are witches or wizards. However, in my book, magic represents women's reproductive rights, and they have to fight for their right to use their own magic, just like we are fighting in real life for our own rights as women. If you have any suggestions for books that would match that please let me know thank you so much hey there 
witchcraft and women's rights just always go together great. My first thought in that vein was The Once and Future Witches by Alex Harrow. I know that one is historical fantasy, but it uses witchcraft as a metaphor for a lot of different feminist themes, particularly women's suffrage in a very direct way, which sounds like something you're looking for. So I think you could still use it to pitch your book with something like the magical feminism of the once and future witches meets the modern fantasy of X, where X is your urban fantasy element. For that, there's always A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness, which I know is a little older, though the last book in the series was 2018. For something smaller and more recent, maybe consider The Adam Binder Books by David R. Slayton or Springs Arcana by Lilla St. Crow. I know that one just came out just this month, depending on which way your book's tone swings. Wonderful, RJ. Thank you. Okay, here is our second one. Hello, Bianca and Master Bookseller. I'm looking for comps for my adult sci-fi novel set in a world where quantum technology accurately predicts the day that everyone will die. Thematically, I've looked at They Both Die at the End and Denton Little's Death Date, but those are both YA and not the same character arcs. The Immortalists is completely different in style. My story is reminiscent of the morality war in All the Birds in the Sky, in that both sides of the conflict genuinely think they're saving the world. But tonally, there's more camaraderie and humor with colorful enemies turned allies, very much like the movie Hackers. I would love to hear any other suggestions you have. Thank you. First off, I love All the Birds in the Sky, and I love you for bringing it up. You did mention practically every book I know about characters predicting their death dates, but I did notice the absence of The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich, so I'll just toss that one out. But since you're not finding a lot of matches with the other books about death predictions specifically, I'm going to go a little wider on the tech omnipotence theme. These are some things that sort of remind me of All the Birds in the Sky's tech faction. My first suggestion is The Every by Dave Eggers, which is about this tech monopoly running people's lives and characters working from within to take it down. It's satirical, so it might be a match for something with humor. And then The Candy House by Jennifer Egan might be a stretch, but might also be an interesting comp. It's about a technology that lets people digitize and swap memories, and it's told in a lot of different perspectives, going into the pros and cons of the tech, which might get into that both sides genuinely believing their right element. And one final heads up, there's a book called The Future by Naomi Alderman coming out in November. She's the author of The Power, and I think this new one might be pretty huge. It also looks like it revolves around prophetic technology. It has a team-up heist situation, so I expect some of those camaraderie vibes. I keep an eye out for that as well if you're still querying into next year. All right, and here's our last one. My name is Michelle Lizette, and my novel is an 80,000-word post-apocalyptic fantasy. The main POV knows loss well before lurching creatures and a quiet man force her retreat inside an underground cavernous shelter where she learns that a sub-society of people have supernatural powers. She makes a graver discovery when she learns that this sub-society of people have for generations hired so-called handlers to infiltrate the lives of and control people like Audrey who do not know that they have powers. The worst discovery is that the man who remains above ground in harm's way, the man she wanted to marry and have children with, is a handler himself. I'd say themes are uh, the abandonment of one's father and learning to love and know yourself despite a parent's absence 
and the book is dark. I have often said it's similar to Orcs and Crake and Station Eleven. So the most obvious comp to me seems to be N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy. It has the dark themes, the post-apocalyptic setting, and the conflict between people with powers and the forces trying to control them. Later in the series, it even has some complex father-daughter elements. My only worry is that Jemison is still a really big name to comp, and from the examples you gave yourself, I'm guessing you're looking for smaller names. I'll also say some of the plot elements in your pitch reminded me of Pierce Brown's Red Rising series, which is still putting out new books as recently as this year, though it's definitely more capital G genre than the literary comps you mentioned in your pitch. And for my last thought, I'm going to go with The City in the Middle of the Night by Charlie Jane Anders. It's not post-apocalyptic, but it does take place on a barely habitable planet that has those surviving in a dystopia vibes. And it has mysterious creatures lurking at its edges. And there's a theme of characters having to reform their sense of identity after losing significant relationships in their lives. I'd say it's less dark and more hopeful than a lot of the other books you or I mentioned, but it still deals with some serious issues. Awesome, RJ. Thank you so, so much for joining us. And we look forward to chatting again in August. All right. Look forward to it. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.